Hi, this is Carrie. Welcome to episode 200 of the Backlash podcast. It's hard to believe we've been here for this long, but we keep them coming week by week. What do you think, guys? I think it's kind of amazing we made it this far. I think that's probably only, of 200 <clears throat> episodes, that might be only one or two times that you didn't hear my voice first. So, And of course, two. What, two. it's two? We've made you do that two times? Yeah. Yeah, this one and one other time you threw me under a bus. Yeah, I like to do that when you show up once in a while. So, <laughs> hey, we're just happy you're here, Carrie. I mean, I'm glad that you made it to 200. I think that you made it to 102, but I can't remember. I haven't listened to that episode, and, and that was a year and a half ago. But anyways, I guess before we go too far into episode 200, we really should thank all of our listeners for putting up with us this long. It's uh, because of our listeners and our great guests that we've gotten on. I mean, we've had obviously some repeat guests, but I would say we've probably talked to no less than what do you guys think maybe 120 probably for sure different people within the musky industry it's probably close yeah i mean i know obviously we've done some repeats and some people have had multiple episodes and three episodes and things like that but you know for the most part we've been trying to bring a fresh new perspective to it and speaking of that as of right now we're doing this intro, but we haven't really talked to any guests yet. So, but I know for sure of we've lined up three different guests for this episode that we would consider to be legends of musky fishing that haven't that we haven't ever had on for whatever reason. Over the past two hundred episodes, we've never connected. We've never made it happen. Maybe it was just short sightedness on our part. But you know, Brad and I and Carrie, we started putting together a list of some people that we haven't talked to that were we felt were influential to musky fishing. And those people came up on our list, and we tracked them down, and we're gonna we're gonna talk to some fresh, we'll call it fresh blood, but most of these people have had lots of experience in musky fishing, so it should be an exciting episode. The idea, and you know, we had some feedback on it, and people kind of wanted us to talk about stories, so we're gonna let them talk about big fish stories, which is also why some of these guests are gonna be perfect for the episode because they've had so much experience, they've had lots of big fish in the net. So we're gonna talk either big fish stories, best day on the water type stories. And then we're going to try to get a little bit of the uh, the le- the lessons, I guess, behind it, the learning behind it, you know, and it try to help you have an entertaining and educational uh, episode for this one. I think that's the goal. Whether or not we accomplish it, I don't know. We'll find out in a couple weeks because this is going to take place over, the recording is going to take place over a couple weeks because, you know, hopefully in the end this episode is somewhere around the two-hour range. We'll see what happens. Well, honestly, Jeff, it is amazing that we're at the uh, 200th episode. It's exciting. I guess I didn't really put it in perspective when we first started doing this thing that we would be hitting 200. And it is basically just about our listeners. I mean, it seems like people are still hungry for it. And uh, we have the platform to do it. It's been a blast. It really has. And I want to thank you as well, Jeff. I mean, you're the one that's put a lot of time and energy into the recording and the editing and all the other stuff. So thank you to you. I don't know. It's still fun. Let's just keep rolling. Like you said, it's been quite the ride. I, when we got to 100, I, I had hoped that we'd make it to this point. I hope that people would still listen. You know, we're talking 200 episodes, which is, you know, 52 weeks in a year. So we're pushing close to four years, obviously, with bonus episodes and things like that. I mean, we're, you know, we're not quite at the four-year mark. I think that actually takes place at some point in May, I believe. It'd be like May of 2019, I think, right before Labor Day, I want to say would be uh, or Memorial Day. Sorry, I always get those two confused. Anyways, um, you know, that's when we started. So technically, we're not quite at the four year mark. But I mean, to for us to do it this long, like I said, it is it owes an incredible debt of gratitude to to our listeners, because if 
five people were listening every single week, I can't say that I would find the motivation to put an episode out every single week. But since it's the number is at least double that, I mean, we got at least 10 people that want to listen. I think it's worth it for those 10 people. Well, those 10 were very important at that point then, Joe. Absolutely. I mean, when you only have 10 people, you can't afford to lose too many. <laughs> oh, it's been a wild ride, that's for sure. Let me ask you one question, Brad. When we started, did you did you think that we would do this for almost four years? I guess I didn't look at the big picture, honestly. I mean, I I thought, here we go. You know, you, you asked me to be a co-host, and I'm thankful for that as well. I didn't envision where this was all going to go, honestly. But I do actually still look forward to it weekly. And the reason I do is I get to talk to some of these people that, you know, I see at shows or maybe I talk on the phone with them briefly here and there. But it's really cool to hear people's perspectives. And I think that's the exciting part, right? I mean, every time that we record, we end up figuring something else out, right? And I've always said it's, it's about a puzzle. Musky fishing is a big, giant puzzle. And the more pieces you get together, you know, the further along you get in the whole sport of musky fishing. And, and I think we're, we're providing some pieces to that puzzle. That, that's the beauty of this whole concept. And hopefully along the ride, you know, people have learned a few things. I know I have. And for me, I'm grateful. I got to talk to like, we'll, you know, we'll call them like, I don't know, childhood heroes, essentially. I wasn't a kid when I started musky fishing, but I was far younger than I am now. And, you know, I used to read books from a lot of these people, or I'd read magazine articles for a lot of these people. And I never once thought I would have an opportunity to interview them and talk to them and, you know, in some cases be friends with them. I mean, you know, there's there's times where I'll get random texts from some of them about certain things or, or I'll text them about certain things. And it's, you know, there's almost a friendship involved there. And it's it's been really cool for me on, on the, you know, the background side of things to develop that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we've developed some other relationships, you know, with just reaching out to some people that maybe I didn't know or you didn't know. And uh, some of those relationships have grown from that. So that's a cool part of it as well. All right, guys, enough of this chit chat. Let's get the show on the road. Let's do it. All right. Our first guest for this episode 200 is Bill Sandy and, if you don't know, he owns and operates Sandy's Blackhawk Island out of Canada, and we've never had Bill on. Um, I would say if you're newer to the muskie game, Bill might not be exactly a household name. If you're my age, he is, and he's been a regular on you know, Jim Sarek's Muskie Hunter. I know he, he's involved with their uh, Muskie Hunter school, and it will, it will stop short of calling him a legend, but he's definitely a legend in muskie fishing, and we're super happy to have him on. In fact, I'm kind of amazed that we haven't had him on just for a regular episode, so Bill, you know, first off, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to to join us. But then I also, we haven't ever had you on the podcast, so let's go over a little bit of your, you know, your history, how long you've been doing it, what got you into musky fishing, talk a little bit about your camp, because I know, you know, much like everybody up in Canada, things have been a little bit crazy for the past couple of years. So before we jump into, you know, stories of big fish around the water or whatever we're going to end up talking in this episode, you know, let's go down uh, down that path with you and, and get some background on you. Well, you know, born and raised in the Northwest Angle area, lived there my entire life. Uh, my parents owned a resort up in Monument Bay, which I worked for them for 25 years before I uh, decided to go out on my own and uh, build my own camp. So I've been musky fishing my entire life. Started at the age of nine guiding uh, to, to present day. 
All right, so Bill, let's talk a little bit about the camp itself. I mean, or, or let's let's actually back up. So you said you were guiding at nine. How did that go? Like, right. what did your clients think when you were trying to guide them at nine? And you know, how, as a nine-year-old, I mean, how did you get the knowledge that you needed to get to where you were at at nine years old? I mean, it's crazy. Most kids aren't even picking up a baitcaster at nine. They're still playing with their Xbox. <laughs> right. Well, like I said, I was born and raised up there, and that's all I've ever done is hunted and fished, you know. And, uh, yeah, it was something. I mean, I'd be down on the dock waiting for my client to come, and they'd walk down looking for their guide, and I'd be sitting there in the boat waiting for them, and they'd just walk right by me. And then pretty soon my dad would come down or my mom or whoever and say, oh, well, this is your guide for the day. And they'd kind of look at me and kind of scratch their head a little bit. But by the time the day was over, uh, they were – ready to take me out for the next day or for the whole week so i mean uh like i said it's been uh it's the only thing i've ever done my entire life so it was it was easy for me yeah that's incredible i can only imagine <laughs> be like me taking my youngest son down and you know giving him some some clients and be like here this kid's gonna take you fishing for the day it just be that's that's entertaining it's fun stuff you know back when you started guiding or were you were you running the the boat or was this uh i, I don't even know how old you are were we rowing boats or what were we doing there Actually, well, I'm not quite that old, Jeff, but <laughs> pretty close. <laughs> no, I mean, if we were running, you know, like uh, 10 to 15 horse uh, motors with uh, 14 to 16 foot Alumacraft boats, you know. Yeah, I mean, they were, they were small, small boats. We didn't have to go far. Fishing uh, was very good on Lake of the Woods back then, and it still is. It was, I would say it was much better back then just because of the pressure now and everything. It's not quite the same. So we really didn't have to travel very far. I rarely got out of Monument Bay, which, you know, if you went two miles in a day, that was a long, long ways. So I got to I gotta ask you, because I'm not 100% sure, was it purely all musky fishing and guiding, or, you know, are you doing multi-species on a regular basis as well? Well, when I started back then, it was a multi-species. I mean, uh, even though the Monument Bay Lodge was known as a musky camp and probably the only one on the lake back then, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s until my parents bought it, you know, and it continued that way. So it was primarily musky fishermen. But back then it was most of those multi-species, so I fished for everything. I mean, it started with whatever, you know, crappie fishing, walleye, bass, pike, trout, muskies, you know, everything. But once I got the, the musky fever, you know, at that age up there, because uh, the fish were numerous up there, so it was, it was nothing to see. 50, 60, 70 fish in a day. And that's back then when we didn't have the equipment we do nowadays. So I couldn't imagine what it would have been like if we would have been able to fish back then with what we have now. It would have been unbelievable. All right, Bill, well, let's talk a little bit about the camps. Like I said, uh, you know, things have been a little bit strange up there in Canada for the past couple seasons. You know, how was your 2022 season? And why don't you talk a little bit about Outlook for 2023 if people are looking to come up and visit you? What's, I mean, there's probably some changes to the, uh, you know, to the status as far as crossing the border. And what, I'm sure you know all the latest because obviously that's your business. Right, right, yeah. You know, as of last year, they, the border opened, I believe it was August 8th is when they ended up to uh, vaccinated. And that's fully vaccinated. And before that, if you weren't vaccinated, you weren't able to cross the border. I mean, the border was literally shut down from uh, spring or the fall of 19, no, spring 19 through 20. And then August 8th of 21 is when they opened the border up to fully vaccinated. So that affected the businesses, all businesses in Canada. If you can about imagine for the year and a half there, the border 
border was literally shut down so that there was absolutely no tourism in Ontario or anywhere across Canada for that matter. So once it opened up in uh, in late August, uh, we started getting people coming back in, but you know it was still very slow. People still weren't aware because there was a lot of people didn't know what it would take to get across the border, and it wasn't very easy. I had to go through, jump through a lot of hoops to get up to see me. So I had a lot of clientele that didn't get there. Then they finally opened it up last year to. Uh, they just completely opened the border. They dropped all the vaccinations and everything, so you didn't have to be vaccinated now to get into Canada. So this should uh, this should really help the tourism in Ontario and across Canada again. Now that you don't need a vaccine card or any of that other stuff that they were they were uh, wanting you to bring and show at the border. So yeah, so hopefully our our uh, our season's going to be better and we'll get a little bit of normalcy back in our lives again. Would be really nice. Yeah, after everything you guys have gone through, everybody, every camp up there, everybody in tourism up there in Canada, it'd be a, a welcome adjustment for everybody or a welcome addition for everybody to get as many people as they can back in the camp. Oh, uh, absolutely. So, Bill, let's talk about if people want to come up and join you, how do they go about uh, getting information, uh, booking a trip, checking out the camp? What do they do? Well, they can uh, redo my website right now. I really can't say anything much about that until I really get it up and going. The, the easiest way right now would be just to email me and that would be uh b sandy 1974 at gmail.com or my phone number is 218-689-3853 so that would be the best way to get a hold of me at this point well you know uh, episode 200 it's uh we've had people ask us they're like uh can you guys get some people on and want to talk about fish stories or days on the water or anything like that and you know, Bill, we haven't. You're the first guest, so you're kind of the guinea pig. We haven't gone through this with anybody else. Can you tell a story, or can you talk about some some of the better days you've had, some of the bigger fish you've had? Maybe lay out the land as far as you know the time of year, that kind of stuff. Have you got any stories for us? I'm sure you've you've seen it all in musky fishing. You've been on the water for, I mean, literally since you were nine. Or literally since you were <laughs> born, but you've been guiding since you were nine. So I'm sure you've seen right. a lot. I have, you know. Over the 50-plus years that I've been guiding on the lake, yeah, I've seen a lot of things. And I tell you what, in musky fishing, right when you thought you've seen it all, well, you'll see something else. That's one thing about fishing is fish, which is why it's so addicting, you know. They're so unpredictable in, in many cases, and sometimes they are predictable, but you just never know. Every fish seems to be uh, an individual sometimes, you know, where they do something different than the other ones. But, yeah, I've had some wonderful days on the lake, you know, over the years. I would say my best day on Lake of the Woods was we caught 19 fish that day, and we should have had probably over 40 that day because I don't know what was going on, but we never had a follow. Everything that came to the boat or where a bait landed in front of eight, as long as it was black. It didn't matter if it was a bucktail, a suic, a reef hog, or it just didn't matter. As long as the color was black, they were going to eat it. That was pretty spectacular. And of the size of fish, well, you know, Lake of the Woods is known for all sizes of fish. But, uh, you know, I've seen some some really big fish over the years, you know, some that are uh, actual world record size, no, no question about it. You, you almost hate to talk about fish of that size because people look at you kind of weird. But for people that have spent many years on the water, and, they, uh, and, you know, they've seen them. I mean, if you could probably talk to Dick Pearson or any of them that have many, many, many hours out on the lake. And not only Lake of the Woods, just fishing in general. I've seen some spectacular fish over the years. 
Bill, what's your personal best up there? Uh, 58. I've got three at that mark. Um, wow. 57, sixes, fives, fours, threes, twos, all the way down to the smallest fish that Muskie ever caught was about nine inches. <laughs> wow. I almost feel bad catching them when they're that little. I feel like I'm going to hurt them. I know. Yeah, we kind of felt the same way. I think Carrie's, Carrie's uh... My personal smallest is like 16. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think he just ran into the bait, or the bait ran into him. I don't think he tried to eat it or nothing. <laughs> you know, Bill, let's talk about that day on the water. We got nineteen. What time of year was it? Was that? And you know, was there anything special going on as far as moon or or anything like that that would create that, or was it just one of those days? You know, it's just one of those days when the stars align or for whatever reason. And, and, you know, over the years, you know, I've seen it a few times. That was probably one of the best times. But I've seen, just guessing, over the 50-some years, I probably had 15 days that were like that where you, you couldn't do anything wrong. It just didn't matter. It didn't matter where you went or what you did. Their fish were just on, and they were eating. Was it a moon phase? Was it this? Was it that? You know, I really don't know because one thing I, I, the way I fish is when I leave the dock in the morning, you know, and when I come back in the evening, I fish the same way every, every day. I don't really change a lot because I guess the reason why is because I know the water so well. When I look across the lake, I don't actually see the surface of the lake. I actually see what's under the water. Like I can see the, the drop-offs, the whatever it might be trees underwater, whatever it is, I know where everything's at up there. So when I fish, I know where these fish are all the time. So I guess that's why it makes it easy for me, you know, because I, uh, I can only think of maybe a handful of days in 50 years where I didn't pull a fish in the boat. I mean, and that's why, just because I know the water so well. Not that I'm a better fisherman than anybody, because I, I, I actually I fish with guys that are probably better fishermen than me, but I know the water better than them. You know, so I, I fish, that's why I fish the way I do. Well, we've said it on this podcast numerous times. There's no exception for time on the water, and obviously you know, that's kind of what you're saying right there. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, once you, under, once you understand the fish and how they move up, move about the lake and how they set up on these spots and everything, so it all becomes about knowing, knowing what you're fishing. If you know what you're fishing, they can't hide from you. You can always get a bait in front of them, and, you know, sometimes uh, – I know they're there, so sometimes it takes a little patience, you know. Uh, that's the one thing a lot of people do is they, they fish too fast. And that's good That's good if the fish are really hot and moving and heavy and quick and you want to run and gun. But, you know, that, that's a very small percentage of the days that you're out there that are like that. So you really got to take your time and back it down a little bit, slow down, and pick it apart. So one of the things that I've always heard about Bill Sandy is – his figure eight is probably second to none. So, Bill, can you explain a little bit about uh, what you're actually thinking, what you're actually doing and reacting to these fish in a figure eight? Maybe help some of the listeners understand uh, the maneuvers that they need to take place to actually catch these fish. Well, one thing, one of the most important things that I learned is uh, actually reading the fish, you know, watching them come in and see how you react to what you do, you know. You, you know, maybe the bait up a little or maybe just flutter the bait a little bit or whatever just to get him to start to react to you once you get the once you get him to react to you a little bit and you just kind of lead him around 
you know, lead them around, get them fired up, and then, then hang it to them, you know. Give them the opportunity to eat it. And you try to always get them to eat it on that outside turn. So there's really no hooks that involved. All you got to do is just tighten up. Just sweep the rod, tighten up, and in the corner of the mouth every time. I mean, it sounds simple, and it, it really is. Once you do it a lot and you understand how to read a fish, you know, and then they don't all bite like that. And then sometimes you got to play with them a little bit, you know. You just got to keep moving around, maybe go deep, come up high. And the biggest thing is just try to get them to react. You know, once you get them to react, you usually, usually you can, you can, uh, you can get them to eat. I think we probably do some of the same similar maneuvers, if you will. One of the things that, you know, it's so hard for a lot of new anglers. I mean, they get out there on the water, and I think a lot of times, Bill, they always think they got to speed up, speed up, speed up. But sometimes, you know, that speed is not necessarily what's going to heat that fish up. And I think it takes a ton of time just to identify what that fish actually wants. How is it responding? So that's kind of the magic in it, really. And I think uh, the only way you get really good at that is just having those repetitions with fish following and, and having success. Oh, absolutely. No question about it. And that, that is exactly the truth right there. You know, exactly the truth. All right, Bill. So let's, uh, one last question. Let's, you know, Carrie, you want to jump in somewhere in here too? So Bill, I was thinking, you've caught some fish, obviously some giant fish, you know, fish up to 58. Is your yeah. approach any different when you're chasing down a 58-inch fish versus a just trying to get a bite type of a day? Or do you just go out fishing? You you know some of these spots where big fish are hanging out, and in uh, you know some days they bite, some days they don't. You know what's the process there? Is there a, is there a mindset difference when you're looking for a big fish? Um, for me, not not really. Like I said, I, I know that water so well, and I know you know big fish can be anywhere up there. That's one thing. There's there's no set spot for a big fish on Lake of the Woods. Certain areas, maybe every once in a while, you know, they're that will hold big fish more often than others. That doesn't mean you're going to catch them. Usually the big fish I catch, they just come out of nowhere. All of a sudden, they, you just catch them. The ones I chase, they're hard. That's what you do. A lot of times you're chasing them. And, uh, yeah, I, I've never really come up with it. And I've tried the uh, perfect times like the moon phases and the wind switches and all this other stuff. And, you know, it, it doesn't work very well for me. So even when I do see really big fish, I will go back and try them a few times. But if, if they don't eat, I move on. Because a lot of times the time I spent not or chasing that one, I miss the one that's going to bite for me a mile down the shoreline on a different spot. And that's happened to me quite often where if I would have spent a lot of time fishing for that 55-incher, I wouldn't have caught that 57 45 minutes later. You know, because a lot of times when you get big fish movement, that's exactly what it is, big fish movement. So if you spend a lot of time on one, not saying you shouldn't, but for me, I, I don't spend a lot of time on it because I know if I move on, I'm in a, a window where these big fish are active. And Lake Lewis has a lot of big fish, so I keep moving. And, that, and I'm just speaking for Lake of the Woods. You know, the other lakes, you probably can't fish that way because there isn't quite the number of big fish, so you have to work on a certain fish. But but for me, I'm like the woods. It's, it's not that way for me. I hate to keep going to, like, I got one more question, but, like, 
Do you no, tip, do you typically find that you're catching more big fish in the fall? I mean, because obviously musky hunters, we love the fall, right? We love September, October, November. We always say the nastier the weather, the better the fishing can be or the better chance at catching that true giant. I mean, are you catching right. these fish in, in fall or are you finding them all season long? I'm finding them all season long, you know. I've caught some really big ones on opener. You know, one of my 58s came on opening day. Um, but I've caught big fish in July, big fish in August, September, October. But as a rule, I would say August is when you really start seeing the knee shakers come up. So when they make you, you know, take your breath away a little bit, you know, that's when you start seeing them. Um, early season you can, but I would say um, August on, August, September, October, yeah, are the ones that'll leave you shaking. How about this, Bill? How about when uh, the weather, you know, Jeff kind of included the weather as a big part of that. And interestingly enough, I mean, if I look back at all the different 50 inch fish that I've caught over the years, I'd say a great majority is on a sunny, calm day. One of those days that you don't find typical from what everybody else says, right? It's amazing. I don't know. Do you see that on Lake of the Woods, or do you think that weather really helps you up there? No, I've had I've had wonderful fishing days. They're bright and sunny, calm. Yeah, like you said, uh, the high noon sun. You know, where the the light is penetrating probably the deepest. Uh, maybe that's the reason for it. You know, these fish are able to look up and see see the baits better, or whatever whatever it may be. But yeah. I would say from that, that 11 o'clock to 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I've, I've caught probably, just guessing, probably 60% of my big fish have come in that time frame. Yeah, you know, on bright and sunny. And for, like I said, you know, it's always good. To, the weather's good, too. You know, weather, uh, wind switches and weather changes and all that other stuff, too. But like you said, for the majority of the big fish that I've caught has always come that, that high noon or midday time. I sometimes wonder too if that's uh, that time frame where a lot of fishermen are sitting and having lunch or sitting on the shore or whatever doing what they're doing. But I kind of relate it to like hunting big bucks. A lot of times, if you look at a whitetail, that middle of the day time frame, a lot of times that's when they're on their feet because everybody's in having lunch. Right, right. I mean, that's a possibility. You know, I never really thought of it, but hey, that could be that could be part of it for sure. That's amazing stuff. Yes. No question. Well, Bill, for the purpose of episode 200, we, you know, we could go on and on. There's lots of stories to be told. There's lots of information right. to gather out of you, you know, but we got to keep this at a reasonable level and we'd love to have you on sometime in the future if you'd be interested, but absolutely, we want to thank you hey, for getting involved yeah. in this episode with us. You know, before we leave, if people do want to get in touch with you to come out to your lodge, what's the best way to do that again? To email me, bsandy1974 at gmail.com or 218-689-3853. Perfect. Well, Bill, we want yeah. to thank you again for your time. We really appreciate it. I know this isn't always something that, you know, people want to make time for, but we really appreciate you making time for us. And Oh, absolutely. You know, I certainly I hope that, a pleasure. I certainly hope that you uh you know, things rebound for you guys up there in Canada. Like I said, we feel for all those Canadian resorts that have struggled through the past couple seasons and you know, you guys deserve to have uh, we'll so call it a ray of sunshine, you know, for hopefully in the, in the 23 season is, is one of your best ones yet. That would be nice. That would be a wonderful thing. Thank you, Bill. You have yourself a good day. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, sir. All right. Our next guest on this episode is none other than Pete Mena. 
Pete, thanks for taking time out of your schedule to uh, talk to us, especially we had a little bit of scheduling, you know, I would say difficulties, but definitely, definitely some uh, things we needed to line up between Brad leaving and you leaving and, uh, you know, short time frame now between this, you know, this current time and uh, when episode 200 comes out. So we appreciate you with the back and forth trying to get this one worked out. So Pete, how are you doing this morning? Well, I'm good. I'm good. We're all busy because we're trying to spend as much time outdoors, either hunting or fishing, I guess. And that's the way it is. That's the way it should be, actually. That, that's what life is all about, really, when it comes down to it, I think, anyway. But uh, <laughs> glad we can make it work out and a uh, pleasure to be here, guys. Yeah, well, we, we really appreciate it. So, Pete, you know, it's the first time we've had you on the podcast, hopefully not the last time. And, you know, I would assume at this point, that you're a household name within muskie fishing and, but you know what they say about assuming. So let's, uh, you know, why don't you, you, know, you kind of go over, you know, a little bit about, about you, maybe uh, when you started fishing, you know, we had Bill Sandy on and he was telling us stories about guiding at like nine years old. And I think if I remember, you probably weren't too far off from that. Were you Pete? No, not far off at all. I believe it was, uh, 11 years old was my first guide job. So, Real quickly, I was I was set up pretty well. I went from what could have been an absolute disaster because I was born in Chicago. However, my parents moved up north and bought a resort when I was six months old, so I was saved. And of course, in those days, you know, it, it was strictly fishing resorts. It was a little resort my folks had, and and that's all anybody came there for or did. There was no recreational vacations. It was all fishing and. But mainly, I, you know, I think it's just a genetics kind of thing. Uh, you know, we're all, I think everybody here on this is obviously wired to fish. And, and, and obviously that was the case with me. And then having access to the water constantly, being a young guy at a resort like that, uh, it, you know, it, it was awesome. Uh, you know, I, I, would, I would be out fishing all the time. It, it, it started on the dock, but as soon as I could roll a boat and this, that, and the other, I was always getting into trouble from fishing too much, pretty much all my life. But but I did have a replacement guide job uh, at 11. You could argue that that probably started things because I uh, the guy did catch a muskie, and and I felt like a huge hero you know, because of it. So the the fledgling eagle was going at the age of eleven, and uh, but but in reality, it was just you know being addicted to it. And I started guiding uh, full time at uh, at the age of fourteen in the summers and, and weekends in the fall. And was supposed to go to college and do a lot of other things with my life. I was told I would uh, I would starve to death by all of the experts out there, but I I skipped college and uh, kept on fishing and, and guiding and, and, you know, a lot of things have, had happened since then. Uh, eventually, I got opportunities to, to even be on TV. I, I, w- I know I was really amazed the first time somebody asked me to do a seminar on fishing and that people actually want me to come and talk about how to catch a muskie. I thought that was pretty wild, but uh, it's been a been an interesting trip that's for sure and uh you know if, if you could make uh you know make a living fishing that's it's, it's a pretty amazing deal really so i have to say i'm blessed absolutely you're not doing any more guiding though right now are you i quit that about uh 15 years ago completely basically 20 years ago i started phasing out of it i've Basically, it was uh, I was super, super busy, and I had a lot of television opportunities between uh, 
Bass Pro Shops and Gillespie's Waters and Woods. I literally uh, filmed, by the way, a, a lot of people don't know this part. Literally the first show that John Gillespie ever did, I filmed with him. And we've been friends and filming together ever since. And with with so much going on in the, you know, the television realm, of course, uh, I basically had to quit guiding. People wanted to go, but, you know, I would have to, uh, you know, cancel some stuff kind of last minute, you know, and they didn't, they didn't like getting a call after they booked me for a year saying, oh, I got this television opportunity coming up. I'd like to do, sorry, I can't do that. So, you know, they were, <laughs> they wouldn't be real happy about that. And I couldn't blame them a bit. So I basically just phased out of that. You know, recently, if I, if I saw something, right, it seems like you and Dave Brown have teamed up on to do some YouTube stuff. Is that right? You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, uh, you know, I've dabbled in the YouTube stuff a little bit here and there. Uh, but Dave Brown is uh, someone I've known of for quite some time, but never really got to know well at all and never fished with until this year. And uh, yeah, we we just got to talking and, uh, and uh, he was interested in working with me. I do fairly well catching muskies. I've caught quite a few. I've been on television a lot, but I'm completely worthless when it comes to cameras, computers, that type of thing. Dave can actually catch muskies and is pretty amazing uh, as far as uh, setting things up and putting it all together from an editing standpoint. So it's been uh, it's been interesting, and I, I, I think it's it's going to be a lot of fun this coming year. I mean, besides just uh, you know his capabilities, I, I enjoy fishing with him and stuff. So where we can, obviously, I'm going to continue to do other stuff with uh, with Gillespie and and. Uh, musky fish on my own get out whenever i can but that's a fun little ad so if people haven't yet yeah uh, check out my uh youtube page dave and i are doing stuff together i'm sure it hasn't been that way yet but i've told dave you know if he if he gets a neat piece on his own to throw it up there so you'll you'll see a little bit of everything up there on my youtube page now for listeners that don't know where to find that what what's the name of it Pete Main, a professional muskie angler. It's kind of a long winding, but yeah, if you go on YouTube and search me, you'll find me. And uh, my, my website, PeteMaina.com, basically, that's a good source for everything, the social media and all of the different stuff. So, so Pete, the reason we're talking uh, episode 200 is we're tracking down some guests that have some pretty good experience, you know, putting big fish in the net. So, or, or it, you know, just having great days on the water, a lot of time on the water. You know, do you have anything that sticks out? You got any, you know, memorable, you know, big fish stories you could tell us? Well, uh, probably the uh, the single biggest fish that I ever had on and got on film. Unfortunately, it was very brief. Was in the year two thousand over on uh, Malax. I was filming with the next bite. This is before it got. It was popular, but not super duper popular. I had this fish. Interestingly, it was a, uh, a nasty, nasty cold front at the end of August. A uh, couple of days, it was like a high of 40 at the most. And, and what got the fish moving was uh, sun coming out and warming up a little bit the third day. And I believe this great big fish, along with some others, were actually coming in from deep water to the weed line on the, on the north end up there. Interestingly, I already had my bait out, and I'm retrieving it, and I see this fish porpoise. Didn't quite realize how big it was, but I see it porpoise. I jokingly say, 
that it's never going to hit because of porpoise. The cameraman happened to be doing a tip with either Keith Cavias or Gary Parsons. And so the camera's up ready rolling and any, any way the fish hits and he's, he's got the camera rolling and it's on briefly jumps and gets off it completely out of the water. And it was absolutely massive. But I, I said on camera right after that, that I, you know, lost one about 54 and, you know, we're going, Oh my God, it was a big fish. Well, then 40 minutes later, I caught a 54 and then we realized how big the fish was that I lost. I mean, it, it was a lot bigger. So, you know, I don't know that may be the biggest one I've, I've ever had on. Uh, I got a funny story about uh, my dad and I up in Canada that I think was a huge fish as well. I, I probably shouldn't say this, cause, but I will, because I, I, I'm not real wolf. But uh, we w- we happened to be out on an evening run. We well, we had a little whiskey and coke along with us. We were going to fish walleyes. The walleyes weren't biting, and at the end, I told that I even said from a sitting position, I said, "I'm going to throw this musky top water out there, and you just watch. A great big musky is going to bite, and I'm not going to be paying attention." And that's exactly what happened. And I lost that too. But I have no idea how big that one is, to be real honest. It was just a, an absolute massive uh, splash. It was just funny the way I kind of called it jokingly. And I bet that topwater bait made two plops in the water. And then the whole world just exploded out there. <laughs> and that one got away. That's one of those uh, got away stories like everybody has, I guess. You know, Pete, let's talk a little bit about, about time of year for big fish. I mean, we, you know, musky anglers are notorious for, they want September, they want October, they want the crappy days in November. I mean, you told me you're going out today to musky fish and it's probably the last time you will for the year. And these are the days that we look forward to, but in your experience have you know, many of these big fish, I mean, are you catching them only in the fall or are you finding these fish all year round? Oh no, all all year round without a doubt. I mean. You can add a little bit to your odds by, you know, working around moon. Uh, I I prefer new moon rather than full, personally. But to me, there's nothing more important than weather. So there's a couple of things I look at. By, by far and away, the most important is the fishery you're on. And unfortunately, generally, uh, you're, you're going to have to give up action in order for ultimate size. But at the end of the day, it's... It's really quite simple. The people that are consistently putting big fish in their boat are on fisheries that have them. You know, you can't catch stuff that isn't there. So, you know, uh, you know your your Malaxes, your Green Bays, your uh, Lake of the Woods, uh, Vermilion, all these places where they, where they grow big is where your odds are going to be. Ultimately, if you're out east of the St. Lawrence River, I, you know, to me, from my experience with everybody I've talked to and a fair amount of experience on my own out there, I think the the largest muskies overall are probably St. Lawrence fish legitimately as far as ultimate length. But you got you to gotta go where big fish are, first of all. And then I think, you know, to a certain extent, some of that is trial and error on bodies of water, just things you learn while you're out there. You you find some spots that look tremendous that aren't even necessarily all that good at times. The complete opposite can happen. 
Uh, I always tell people if it's a body of water that you you know you're you're you've been on a lot or want to be on a lot, want to catch a big fish on, you got to try the ugly stuff too, because a lot of times ugly spots turn out to be really good spots and and can especially be big fish spots because overall I think the real big fish tend to run away from pressure to a certain extent. But anyway, there seems to be things if you if you pattern a body of water for a while that certain certain spots, areas, situations, usually deep water access is part of it, but you got to try a little bit of everything and places that seem to hold big fish are just going to continue to hold big fish in a lot of cases. So first of all, make up your mind. If you want big fish, uh, you're probably not going to catch as many only fish bodies of water that have them and then try and dial things in from there. And then you can take it a little further. I, I, I do believe that overall big fish like big baits as well. Now getting a little older, I'd almost rather have a young guy in the boat with me to chuck like the one pound stuff. And, uh, <laughs> but there's, there's something to that too. I, you know, I've, I've seen times when, uh, when the really big fish are, are targeting certain things. And a lot of times it's, it's just flat out bigger baits. You know, it's interesting, Pete, you, you talk about the bigger baits and, and the trend that kind of took place over the last 10, 15 years with bigger baits. One of the things that we talked to Bill Sandy about a little bit, too, was equipment. Can you imagine if uh, today's equipment was out there 20 years ago? Yeah, boy, that's really true. It is pretty amazing. Absolutely amazing what's happened with equipment, period. Are you t- are you referring more to uh, Rod? Well, it's all of it, actually. Rod's reels are the technology type stuff. Basically, the fish can't hide anymore. That is for sure. Yeah, it, it's truly amazing what's taken place. And I, you know, I'm just thinking back in the, in my head anyway, of say 20 years ago, some of the reels that we were using and it made the job a lot harder. That's for sure. Oh, it absolutely did. Yeah. I think there was a lot more mystery and, and you, and you were to a certain extent handicapped. The, uh, but you know, people that did a lot of it, like uh, like myself and you and Bill, and you know everybody that's been around for a long time. My personal icons were Dick Pearson and Doug Johnson. Those were the guys I looked up to for years, and uh, and was fortunate enough to uh, spend many many hours in the boat with uh, with both of them. Yeah, it's it, uh, a lot has really 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 changed from them, and it's it, it, it's definitely a lot easier you could argue in a way to get on the fish and catch bigger fish but then again the uh the one thing that's hugely changed to me that i'm sure you guys would agree with is the average angler now is so much better i mean there there literally used to be a handful of people who were really really on top of it and catching the majority of the fish and now I know from a guiding standpoint or whether I was out filming or whatever 20, 30 years ago, for the most part, you could look at the other people out there musky fishing and, and frankly, you know, kind of say, well, they're not the greatest at it. They got a lot of work to do, right? They're not on the right spots. They're not doing the right things. These days with the, uh, with the technology, electronics and everything we have and the knowledge being shared all over the place, the vast majority of anglers I watch on the water 
I'm like, man, they're good. They're doing everything right. <laughs> they're, you know, so there's just a lot more pressure from that standpoint. I, I, I don't know how many more boats are out there, but the average boat is so much better and so much more efficient at it than even a decade ago. It's pretty amazing to me. Yeah, I would agree with that, Pete. I mean, like you said, I think a lot of it has to come down to information sharing. I mean, you know, you guys are putting all your YouTube stuff, but you also have been involved in many, you know, other projects that helped, you know, educate anglers. And, you know, I think a lot of that stuff and access to that information has just made things explode a little bit. On the flip side, I think it's also gotten a lot more exposure to the industry and made musky fishing bigger than maybe many thought it was ever, that was ever possible. Oh, I totally agree on that. I, I totally agree on that. It's uh, it's definitely gotten bigger than I than I thought it ever would. I uh, you know, I had uh, musky mania tackle that I started years ago, and uh, I would be honest in saying that when we had an offer to buy it, uh, myself and my partner more or less agreed that well, this whole musky thing's probably about as big as it's going to get anyway, so we might as well sell it. Well, boy, I was wrong about that. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not the correct assessment, which is good, though, which is good. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, not to get off topic, but you continue to see that. Is is there a top end, do you think, to this this, uh, sport? Or, or, I mean, do you think we're approaching that as far as uh, angler involvement? Or do you think we still have a room to grow? Well, I think there's a little bit of room to grow. I, you know, I, I, I gotta be honest. I, I'm going to be curious to see what's happening now. Uh, you know, it really helps that Canada is open again to spread pressure around a little bit. But I, I do ponder just how much intelligent pressure these fish can take. Are, how smart are they? How great are their learning skills? I mean, we all know that some of the best fishing, you know, with blacks, uh, vermilion, green bay in the early years, I mean, you've got bodies of water that grow real big fish. It helps a lot when they're dumb and they haven't been pressured a lot. They're obviously still catchable, but it's not the same if you've ever had an opportunity to experience relatively unpressured water. There's a, there's a big difference from you know, pressured fish to, to fish that receive very little. They're just a lot more apt to bite. They're, you know, you have a much better odds of, uh, of having, you know, kind of steady action throughout the day rather than just only in brief tight windows. I mean, that's, that, that seems to me that, that happened for years and years since I ever started. Obviously there were speeding windows, but, but to me it's not as profound as it is now with, uh, heavily pressured fish. Uh, in a lot of cases, the only time you have an opportunity is right during peak feeding windows, unless you're doing something crazy different. You've got a new bait, you've got, you know, whatever. But uh, is there a too much pressure thing? You know, there has been, to a certain extent, I guess it's possible. I, I really don't think we're there, but I do wonder how many, uh, how much pressure bodies of water can take especially now that they literally can't hide, you know, the, 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 the new forward facing sonar where you're literally be able to find fish in anywhere, essentially open water, except for, except for real heavy cover, you know, 
They, but, but they literally can't hide these days for the most part with a combination of the knowledge that has been provided over the years and the technology now. Yeah, it's definitely it's, changed the game. Yeah, it's not meant to be negative at all. You can't, I, on, on one hand, I, I have a grumpy old man attitude that I wish nobody had it. I think it would be kind of better overall, but you can't blame anyone for using it. You'd be crazy not to. If it's available, it's, 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 it's fun to see. It's fun to watch. It's like going back to, for years and years, I ice fish without any kind of sonar or anything. I'd sit there and pound the bottom, but once you, the first time you look at a flasher, or now regular 2D sonar, and now obviously you got the, you know, the, the forward facing stuff that, you know, you don't want to fish without it once you've tried it, right? Because it adds to the fun, it adds to the efficiency. You know, it, it, it's just one of those things that to me is going to be somewhat of a, a curiosity and uh and obviously a little more education is required for people to be be careful to not use it in situations that may result in a lot of mortality yeah i think that that's uh, that's a really good point pete i think it comes with responsibility that's the biggest fear in my mind is the responsibility end of you know what fish do you actually attack right so i mean if you put right. one on the and it's way deep, you're better off just leaving that fish be. You know, that that's the bottom line. Yes, absolutely. Well, well I remember, uh, this is ooh, 25 years ago at least, I, I got on a thermocline trolling pattern that started and ended pretty quickly around here. And, yeah, you just, if you know you're damaging some fish, well, I had a, long story short, I had a couple of fish die, and I had a, one questionable one the last day I did it, you know, but I was, in average, I was trolling about 30 feet down in, in summer months and having having success with fish, uh, you know, above or in the thermocline, I had to stop doing that because, you know, in my mind, you know, you're, to me, I'm, I'm cutting my own throat selfishly as well as a guide, you know. You go out there and you, you you kill two out of three even of the or two out of ten of the fish you catch. I mean that's horrible. That's not a very good business model. You know you got to be you got to be careful with them without a doubt. And uh, that's going to be real interesting with the panfish and stuff now this this winter as well. That's that, that's one thing you know a lot of stuff things that the bites that occur in the winter. Excuse me for bumbling and stumbling here are in you know in open water in a lot of cases and uh you know it's so unbelievably easy to find the fish now with the new sonar people could literally fishing deep water decimate some fisheries in in no time at all walleyes or or panfish literally got you know unreleasable fish in some cases if they're willing to make the decision to go ahead and target fishing like 40 feet of water or something yeah that's uh it's been a conversation that we've had for the last couple of years. You know, I really, truly enjoy trolling open water in the month of June over here in Minnesota. And, and it's a great way to catch fish. But honestly, you know, you get to that last week in June, first week in July, you got to shut it down. And, and you might have your baits yeah. up water column, but those fish will come a long ways, especially in clear water. So it's truly remarkable what we have as a tool out there. But, um, 
I guess the best way, like, you know, you said it, it comes with responsibility. And, and a lot of times it scares me that ego will overrule that responsibility. That's, that's my largest fear. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, and, and, and hopefully people will just, uh, you know, make, make the right decisions there. It's, uh, it is that simple, you know, you definitely can't, can't be doing it because there's, <laughs> there are too many people out there who are good now. And unfortunately, if having that photo for social media, holding that fish up, uh, is more important than, you know, the fish surviving, you know, that's, if there's even 10% of the people with that kind of mentality, then, then we are going to see a drop. You know, and unfortunately, uh, it's a, Sometimes those types of things are, are what's required, though, to get people thinking and going back the other way. And, and hopefully, you know, you, you, you hate to have any, any leg be the guinea pig, but, you know, if you see something really drop in quality very quickly that can be directly associated with the fishing pressure, then it's pretty obvious. And it's kind of a slap in the face with a two-by-four to people that they, they need to be careful. I think those kinds of things will occur and, and, and people will adjust because we all enjoy it. Right. I mean, I, you know, I have to say that I, I, I got to believe that the majority of the people, if they really know that they're doing damage, that they're killing fish, if they're killing half the fish, they they're targeting. I mean, I, I, I just think very few are going to continue doing that. It's just a matter of knowledge. Yeah, I, I hope you're right, Pete. That's for sure. And I know, you know, let's think about this. You know, in the years that you've musky fish, how things have changed with uh, releasing fish and, and instead of taking them into uh, to show them off or whatever, you know, there's been massive changes in muskies. And I'd say we're probably the leader in freshwater fish as far as, you know, care and, and uh, actually taking care of the resource. Oh, I think that's true. Yeah, absolutely. Well, <laughs> we did to a certain extent, I, you know, I, I think we kind of got to be, uh, you know, that's a, that's a necessary element just being that they're, you know, they're, they're such a low density animal compared to the other species. So you can see the, uh, you can see the effects pretty quickly. I know I've, I've seen it around here and some of the lakes I fish in Minnesota and places, but it really doesn't take that long. If you get, you know, a, a combination of, uh, warmer water a lot of pressure targeted and, you know, maybe possibly a few more people willing to target deep fish or whatever like that. I've seen, I've seen fisheries go down pretty quickly, you know, where it's, where it's noticeable in, in less than a year. So, you know, that'll, that'll get people's attention pretty quickly. And, and, uh, and I, and I think adjustments will be made. There's, you know, they, <laughs> There's a lot of changes from just three years ago now with this very topic we're talking about with the forward-facing sonar and stuff. So, you know, a lot of people are making adjustments. I I do obviously really believe that at the end of the day, ego can overrule people for a little while, but, you know, if they, if they know they're killing fish, they're going to they're gonna stop what they're doing. I really believe that. Agreed. All right, Pete. Well, I want to... I mean, for the purpose of this episode, we could continue to go on and on and on, but we're, right. trying, we're trying to keep each segment, <laughs> yep. you know, within within reason. So for the purpose of this episode, I want to thank you for your time today. For people that are looking to uh, learn more about you, I know you mentioned it earlier. What's the best way they can go about, you know, finding information on you? 
Website is quickest and easiest, social media, all the stuff there, PeteMaina.com. Perfect. So, Pete, once again, I want to thank you for your time, you know, coming out and enjoying, you know, talking muskies with us on this episode 200. And hopefully, as long as you're up for it, we'd love to have you on. Obviously, you know, there's a whole host of topics that we can talk about, and you you, know, you have uh, knowledge and opinions on all of it. So we'd love to have you back on at some point this winter if you'd be, you know, interested. Sure. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Sounds good, guys. Good, good luck uh, wherever you're heading there, Brad. Yeah, I appreciate that, Pete. Um, good luck today, man. You've got your last day on the water, it sounds like. Hopefully you can get it done. And give it a roll. That's <laughs> all we can do. That's what we do, that's for sure. Well, thanks uh, a lot. Yeah, thanks, guys. All right, our guest now is Joe Booker, legendary muskie angler, National Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame, fishing with Joe Booker. Joe, you know, we know your time's valuable, and we want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to come talk musky fishing with us, so thank you very much. Well, I sure appreciate being being with you guys, and uh, I look forward to talking with you about uh, our favorite fish. Absolutely. So let's talk about our favorite fish. You know, for people that don't know, what got you into musky fishing? You know, it's funny. I was born and raised in a, on a small lake in southern Wisconsin, and I, you know, I, I, I really kind of cut my teeth, so to speak, on bass fishing. And, and uh, every once in a while, I catch a, a, a pretty good-sized pike. And I was, was intrigued with, you know, with northern pike even back then because they would eat the biggest bass I would you know, catch on my I hook on my line. And I started taking, um, you know, in my early, my, my late, uh, yeah, around 8, 9, 10 years old, I started taking trips with my grandfather and my dad to northern Wisconsin. And every once in a while, and they were just, strictly meat hunters, you know, perch and walleye fishermen. And every once in a while, we'd have a monkey come up and grab a hold of one of those perch or those walleyes. And I was like, hey, Grandpa, why aren't we fishing for those? And he had no interest in it. Long and the short of it is, you know, I'd, I'd be out there standing off the dock trying to catch a monkey on my own. And eventually they let me, you know, use the boat as I got into my teenage years. And I, and I always had to stay within eyesight of the cabin. I hooked up with several muskies, and of course, they uh, they got the better of me in all cases. Not not just a few. They, you know, I just wasn't ready for them. And and you, you guys got to understand too, you know, how long ago that was. It's over fifty years ago, and back then, you know, there was so little available even to teach people how to do this stuff. So, you know, I kind of like okay, you know, I I'm going to get into this. And then walking it forward a few years. Uh, being in south, southeastern Wisconsin, you know, I finally found out that even locally, there was one muskie lake down there. It was Pewaukee Lake. I heard there were a few muskies in there, and I went out uh, when I, you know, I had got my own, when I finally got my own boat in my early 20s and stuff, I started, you know, going over to Pewaukee Lake, uh, and eventually I tangled with one of those, and I caught it, and, and that was one of the things that got me started. But the, really, the, the big thing that got me started on muskie fishing was being in northern Wisconsin and actually seeing them in action dominate, you know, dominate the ecosystem and, you know, the apex predator come up and take whatever you're bringing in, no matter what size it was, there was something out there swimming in the waters that was much bigger. It was kind of cool. You know, it was just like, wow, I want to, I want to catch one of those. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so Joe, you know, moving forward, when did you decide you wanted to start guiding for him? And were you, you know, I know we had Pete Mayna on recently and he's telling us how he's guiding when he's like, I don't know, eight or nine almost. And then, you know, Bill Sandy was doing the same thing. You know, when did you decide you wanted to go ahead and, and make a living out of this? You know, what's funny about that is 
I was in business with my dad in, in Southeastern Wisconsin, right out of college in a resort restaurant condo business that was a, a family run business. My grandfather had built it right after World War II. And, and then my dad, my grandfather uh, died suddenly. He was my, you know, he was really my original fishing friend and fishing buddy and my fishing hero. And my grandpa took me everywhere, even saltwater fishing, which obviously you, you guys probably know, I, that's what I do all winter long. So I was chasing big saltwater fish and stuff too. But anyways, I, I ended up uh, being a business with my dad and, and my dad and I were the best of friends until we got in business together. We didn't get along at all. And, you know, it was like, you know, oil and water. And one day I said, I'm out of here. And he says, where are you going? Where are you going? And I just made a wisecrack. And you guys will love this. I made a wisecrack. said, uh, you know, I'm going to go to Northern Wisconsin and become a guide. And he looked at me and he goes, you'll starve. That was the motivation. You know, I went up to Northern Wisconsin had a couple of friends up there, and you know that had uh, lodges, and and back then, you know, American Plan lodges were a big thing. Uh, folks today probably don't even know what those are, but back then, people would uh, the, the boats owning your own boat was not a, it was not normal like it is now, and wealthier people in, in particular would go up and stay at these these nice lodges. Uh, the meals were provided, the guides were provided, and you know it was. It was there's still quite a bit of that in Canada, but there's not a lot of that, you know, going on yet in, in Northern Wisconsin and probably Minnesota and, and Michigan either. And the long and the short of it is that's how I got into it. You know, I, it just kind of, and, and, and honestly, there's a little sidebar there. I, I'm up fishing on my own in Northern Wisconsin right before I really got in the guide business. I'm up and up, I'm up North fishing and a local sports shop owner up there said, you know, he, he, we were talking about, you know, some of the fish I was catching and stuff. And I was in there having coffee and he says, you know, you ought to really think about getting in the guide business. You know, I said, well, okay. I says, you know, I don't know where I'm going to get any business from. He says, he says, I got plenty of business that comes right through the sports shop here. I could keep you pretty busy. You know, those are all the things that kind of led to me getting in the business. That's kind of how it started. And when I moved up in September, my poor wife, you know, her heels were dragging on on the floor all the way up to the north because she didn't want to be in northern Wisconsin. And so you can imagine we went up there and got, I had a few weeks of guiding and they didn't fish in, in you know, much beyond mid-October in those days. Then there's snow on the ground and five months of winter and uh, I'm not making any money. And uh, you, you're getting into that first spring of guiding was like, holy cow. And by the way, fellas, made $25 a day of guiding. You know, gas was twenty nine nine back then, but still twenty five bucks. And when I went to thirty five dollars the next year, I was one of the you know one of the expensive guides. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. They <laughs> don't. Yeah, it's kind of funny. And oh, the other thing, fellas, is, is that uh, I started as a walleye guide. You know that back then, back then, you know, late sixties, early seventies, there weren't many muskie anglers you know, pure, hardcore musky anglers. And, and you made your living making sure that, you know, you, had, you, you took people out fishing and, and walleyes was the primary resource. And, I, you know, cooking shore lunches, all that was part of it. So I, what I did, you know, my passion for muskies was already there. And what I did was I'd take people out walleye fishing. And I had these walleye and bass fishing skills, again, from growing up, uh, you know, fishing before I learned the musky trade. That's what I did. You know, I take people out and, you know, cook them a nice shore lunch after we catch our walleyes and stuff in the morning. I say, 
well, guys, you want to go in or do you want to stay out and fish the rest of the day? And I said, we got our limited walleyes here and we can, you know, we can call it a day or we can plug for muskies for a couple hours. And, you know, that's how I got a lot of those folks into muskie fishing in the beginning was uh, a couple hours of muskie fishing in the afternoon. And I'm, I'm sure based off of that, we could, we could talk for hours on gear changes and, and technology changes and all that, because obviously I always say it like your, your generation has probably seen more changes within the fishing industry than any generation will probably see in my opinion. Well, think about this. This will really give you a, you guys a real, like a foundation of you know what I've been through. When I first started guiding it there, I was, if not the first, I was one of the first, but at least in my group and, and the guide association I was, I was involved with, I was the first guy with a trolling motor. <laughs> what? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I was the first guy with a trolling motor and with a little, you know, transom out trolling motor. The other guys made fun of me that I was using electric oars because everybody rode a boat. And guys back then, too, fellas, used landmarks and they were, they, they, they rode, they, they rode their, their clients around. You know, they were, they were paid the boat boys, so to speak. And they rode your clients around. And, and there, the hand, only a handful of us even had a sonar. I, you know, I started with the green box sonar and the electric, and the, you know, a little, you know, Minn Kota 35, I think they were. You had like 35 pounds of thrust, burn a battery up in a couple hours. And you can imagine, if you can just think about that uh, and how far, how much I've seen and how much this whole industry has progressed. And of course, you know, even when you talk about the musky thing, you know, <clears throat> there was no super braids. There was, there were no, I mean, there was five foot pool cue rods, a couple of lures, a couple of lures on the shelf. There were always the same three or four lures in every tackle store. There was hardly a musky section, even in the stores in Northern Wisconsin. It was just a different world. Yep, Definitely. You know, Joe, and we'd love to have you on for a full episode, but for the purpose of this one, I think we got to cut the the history lesson short, which is too bad because that's the stuff I, I actually really enjoy. I like hearing about how things have changed. You know, we've had Russ Smith on before, and I mean, Russ has seen it all as well, and you know, he tells us about the green box and how how advanced that was, and how I, I guess revolutionary it was. So, you know, we're talking big fish on this episode. It's episode two hundred, and I'm you know we couldn't have episode two hundred without having you know guys on like you because you've had so much experience and so many big fish in the boat. So if you could, you know, people like to hear stories about big fish. Do you have a couple of memorable fish or a memorable fish that you'd like to talk about today? Well, you know, probably one of my most memorable days on big fish uh, was my first three fifty day. Now, 350 days maybe are a little bit more common today with the likes of trolling and Green Bay and Lake St. Clair and everything. But you know, if you think about it, it wasn't that long ago that catching multiple 50s in one day was like unheard of. And to have a three fish, a 350 day, a three fish over 50 day was really something. And I caught three fish, only three fish, didn't catch four or five, caught three fish that was on the lower French, uh, French River, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s. It was. 50 and an eighth, 52 and a half, and 55 and a half. And I caught all three of them in one day. I hooked a fourth one, and the fourth one was the biggest muskie I've ever hooked and ever seen really since since then. So, you know, that was quite a day. And I caught them, you know, there was a, you know, it was a classic. All the things that I started to put together on the moon and everything, fellas, all throughout, you know, throughout my history of writing and everything else, 
kind of all was culminating in that particular day. The French River is a great trophy trophy musky fishery, as some of you know. That's one of those those bodies of water. It's a real humbler. You know, you go out there and you can catch fish the whole week and not not catch a single fish. But if you tie into them, and you, you, it's probably going to be, you know, a, a better than 50 chance you're going to get a 50. And I got three in one day, all on all on Booker tails, of course, all bucktail fishing. I, and I also, uh, you know, I also hooked the biggest one. So catching those three over 50, think about it, even the 55 and a half, which at, for, for a quite a, quite a number of years was my biggest ever. I, it, it never really was, you know, like the fish to me because I lost a bigger one that was, you know, pushing the 16th class on the same day. And that fish haunted me for years, for years. And how did I lose them? Had them hooked well. I battled her through, it was, you know, the French River when where I was catching a lot of these fish was in, in heavy current in spots just out of heavy current. And I hooked her in heavy current. Uh, she, I hooked her and then she, and then she, she, she flowed into heavy current. So it, it put a tremendous amount of stress on my tackle. I had to, she was spooling me. So I had to I'd keep, you know, uh, chasing her with the outboard and thumbing the reel and putting more pressure, way more pressure on my tackle than I ever wanted to. And the long and the short of this is um, the leader failed. The snap on the leader failed. It actually opened up. And and I was so devastated by that that I wouldn't trust snaps. I didn't trust snaps then for over 20 years. You know, I just would, because that snap failed. I, I don't know if the snap got tangled during the battle. But, you know, I saw the fish several times close range, you know, and she was head thrashing and stuff. I could see the lure was deeply embedded in her mouth. And she did a lot of wild thrashing. I'm thinking that maybe the snap got, you know, wrapped around the blades and stuff like they can on, 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 on inline spinners and spinner baits and stuff like that. But, yeah, I lost this fish. And, and, and when I lost this big fish, I was supposed to go home the next day. I was so devastated and hopeful that I, uh, my, my friend that I was with, he went home without me and I, uh, I just dropped him off at the dock and I said, find your way home. And he said he would. And I stuck around for a couple more days trying to, trying to see if that fish would float up. Uh, yeah, it was just obsessed with trying to get that fish even after I lost it. And, and during those days, I'll, I'll give you one more thing. During those, those French river days, I was so obsessed with hunting those big fish that I even slept in the boat. I, you know, I actually slept in the boat and fished, you know, almost 24 hours a day for those fish during, during that part of my career. So it was like, wow. But, uh, yeah, three, a three musky over 50 day, which would have been topped by a high 50, maybe even a 60, but I'm going to say it was, you know, at, at the low end 57, at the high end, maybe right at 59 to 60. This fish was just a monster with huge, with a gigantic head. I lost her because of a failed a failed snap. <laughs> that's such a bummer, but that's such an awesome yeah. story. The part I find about all this stuff is, you know, amazing is like how as musky anglers we're so passionate about these fish and we'll put our bodies to such extremes to try to catch these fish. It's just, I mean, if the outside world has to look at us and think we're absolutely nuts, <laughs> and, and rightly so, you know, it's it's uh, you know, that that period of my life where I was so obsessed with hunting those big fish. I am surprised I'm still married. Uh, my wife is, is a saint, really, honestly. You know, we were, we were, that was, we were, that was the early stages of us running uh, our, our tackle business. She's running the tackle business. You know, it's the early days. 
it's the coming early days of Muskie Hunter magazine. When I first started the magazine, I, you know, I, I guide, I was canceling guide clients to go chase these big fish in remote areas of Canada, you know, Georgian Bay, French river, you know, Lac Sewell doing all these hunts for big fish. And you get to a point where you, well, you know, you look at somebody, even like Tom Brady with this, you know, his obsession with, with still playing football. It's kind of like that. You know, we, we 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 kind of lose focus on everything else, and but sometimes that's what it takes to really be successful. You know, you brought your wife into this story. You know, what was her what was her thoughts when you call home and tell her you're going to stay there for an extra three days to try to fish channel chase, chase oh, these fish? Oh gosh, you know, well, I can tell you, you know, it's, uh, I'm a lucky man that uh, she's she's still married to me at 46 years, and uh, we're one of those rare couples that's just stayed stayed the loyalty to each other all these years. And, um, I think that, you know, God bless me because she, uh, she, she stuck through me through all this. And I, I really don't know what her thoughts were, but she was probably overwhelmed. And, but you know, we're raising, she was raising a family and running the business while I'm out there chasing these big fish. And, and, uh, those were, you know, also some of the earliest days of me filming. So, you know, that was before I even had a cameraman. I was self filming a lot of this stuff. You know, it's just, uh, trying to, what, what a lot of folks don't realize when you see when you see where some of us have gone and where we are, excuse me, you know, where we are in our careers, you don't know where we've been. You think about it, I started at $25 a day as a guide. Any money we made making lures, trying to make, make lures, we put it all back into the business. And so, you know, we were always broke. So, you know, that's just the way it was. And, and uh, we really never made much money on the lure, on the lure business, to be honest with you, until we, until we actually sold it. Brad and I have talked about some of that before. It's kind of, you know, everybody thinks they're going to get into fishing and they're going to make it big right away and, you know, things yep. are going to be good, but there's a lot of tough times and, and, you know, there's a lot of grinding and you just have to, I guess, have blind faith, essentially, that it'll work out and you have to be driven by passion in order to make it, you know, go. But if you're driven by money right away, you know, you're going to probably be disappointed. You are, and here's another thing, too. Those advice for young anglers getting into this sport is that, and I've had people come up to me all the time and say, you know, I, I can catch more big muskies than you can. And I said, oh, you probably can. <laughs> but that, you know, you should sponsor me. And, and I, I tell people all the time, I said, you know, when, if you're looking to get into this business and, 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 and you know, get sponsored and all this stuff, whatever your, whatever your passion is in this business, you know, it isn't always what, you know, how good you are as an angler. It's how, how well you can present yourself and make money for a company. You know, it's it's really those people that have been very successful in this business. They're good at helping these companies market their products, and and that's in they're good at catching the fish too. But they have those other tangibles that make them special. Because frankly, you guys both know that in today's world, there's an awful lot of people out there that are good at catching muskies. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think it's I don't want to say it's easier, but in in some instances, I would say it's easier oh, now. Yeah. You and know, it's way easier. It's way easier. People are spoiled today. Let's face it, fellas. You know, it's way easier. You, back then when I started, think about it. I, I, when I had the 350, 50-inch fish day, we didn't have the super braids. Those fish were caught on 36-pound Dacron, you know. And we had line breakage. We had line wear all the time, constantly retying knots, constantly checking your tackle. Everything about what's happened in the, in the last 25 years has changed everything. People come into the sport today. You know, with so much information, such good tackle that they have a huge jump, and that's okay. That's just the way the world works. But it's no, it's a whole different. It's, the 
the learning curve uh, and the success curve is much shorter today. Yeah, and I would just I I would imagine that attributes to some of the growth within the industry because obviously I mean you've seen it the the growth within muskies is you know been b- bigger I would say in the last five years but I mean it's been steadily growing for a long time. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know it was it wasn't that long ago, uh, and you know and you think about in my career where you know there wasn't a musky magazine there weren't musky sports shows there weren't musky podcasts there weren't you know great, you know, companies like you guys, you know, there weren't, there were just, this just didn't exist. Just none of this stuff existed. There weren't musky. There wasn't a, there was a store that just had musky lures. It just, it, this stuff didn't exist. And now it's all commonplace. So, you know, we've created, we created a monster, so to speak, and, and a, a tremendous growth in this sport and, and the interest in the sport and this fish. And along with it, you know, all the conservation that's improved, you know, from the days, think about it. When I started, when I started, they were still shooting muskies. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know that created a, quite a pause, but there was, it was catch and keep. And, and it was different. I had seen an, or, uh, an issue, the first issue of Muskie Hunter magazine, and to tell you how far we've come that way is there's literally an article in the very first ep- issue of Muskie Hunter magazine, I believe, on how to club a muskie. So. <laughs> yeah. And... and and people got to realize that 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 was normal back then. It wasn't, you know, it, it's nothing to, to, to point fingers at or or ostracize somebody for. It was just it was normal, and there was a transition there that was occurring with a younger audience that was getting into it and conservation to get into catch and release and and, and preserve the sport. And frankly, a lot of us that were in the catch and release early were accused of lying. Uh, you know that you you didn't really catch a muskie. You just you know you put it, you're, you're saying you released it so that you know you made yourself look good. But uh, no, if, you, if it isn't if it isn't laying on the slab here at the sports shop, it wasn't real. Yeah, it's crazy. But now I mean, well, I think about here. Think about one more thing. So sorry to interrupt you, but think about one more thing. Catching a world record today is going to be very difficult because nobody wants to take one home and kill it. Weigh it. I can't disagree with you. I've talked. I've talked to people about it, and you know, obviously, it's very hypothetical. But they're like, if you were to ever catch a fish that was big enough, what would you do? I'm like, put it back. I'm like, it's not mm-hmm. that important to me. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you know, some of these real big ones that are, have been caught in the last two, three, four years, you know, they're record class fish. Nobody's going to club them and take them, put them on a scale. So you know that. You know, the old records, whether they're true or not, will probably stand because nobody's going to kill one of those fish. Right. Yeah, just the way it is. All right, Joe. So when we're talking about big fish on this episode, you know, do your tactics change? Do you, does your mindset change? Do your um, spots change when you're trying to chase big fish? Or is it just one day big fish show up, happen to show up on the, sh- on the spots and you catch them, and the next day they don't? What's your uh, process, I guess, there? You know, I think the first, the answer is generally, I would say yes. My mindset is definitely different. And really, for the most part, you know, I'm hunting big fish all the time. I, I when I, back when I was guiding, no. When I'm, but the way I fish now and the way I fished really for the last, you know, 15, 20 years, it's all about catching a big one. So, yeah, your mindset's completely different. <clears throat> um, you're choosing waters differently. Uh, you know, you think about think about waters, even on the Canadian realm, even on the Canadian realm, 
I, I would highly suggest to any of your listeners that you know, make sure you do your homework. There's, there's waters, whether you're fishing in northern Wisconsin, in Minnesota, Michigan, New York, wherever, you know, Canada, wherever, you know, make sure the waters you're fishing are known that produce lots of big fish. So, you know, number one is fishing the right water. You know, whether you're hunting big whitetails or, or catch, you know, trying to hunt big muskies, you got to fish where they are. And, and so the first thing is choosing good, you know, choosing waters that have a high percentage of, of big muskies in them. And then, you know, everything about the way you, way I am big muskies is, 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 is you know, I'm always thinking, and this is something I always tell, even, even when I'm hunting down here, uh, these big redfish and stuff in saltwater is you got to be thinking about the, the one fish that you might catch. And, and I know you guys are probably smiling listening to this part of because that's really what it's all about. The, the, the tackle we use is, is, is overkill for, what, 75% of the fish we probably will hook. But that's not what we're doing here. You know, we're, we're matching tackle not only to the large lures we, we tend to throw, but we're matching our tackle to the one fish that we we're hoping to hook up with. And that fish, you know, will test your tackle to the limit. So when, when I'm hunting big fish, I'm in making, you know, I'm, I might be using larger lures, but I'm making sure that everything, rod, reel, line especially, knot especially, leaders especially, I just told you the story about the, the snap bailing. You're looking at every single thing on, you know, that, that connects you to that potential big muskie as a, you know, where, where can it fail? Where can it fail? Where, you know, where can I go wrong? What can give me a problem? And then eliminating as much of the problem as you can before that one chance it happens. And what happens so often, especially to inexperienced anglers, is we, you know, tend to get sloppy. Don't keep their hooks sharp. Don't keep, you know, don't uh, tie fresh knots. Don't check their drags. Don't, there's all these little things. And it all culminates. Uh, don't check their hooks, even hooks, bent hooks, you know, from getting snagged up on something or whatever. All that stuff comes into play. Checking your landing net, making sure everything's good. Everything around you, everything is, everything's got to be right. So that when you lock up on one of those big ones, you know, you are, you're connected. You're going to, you're going to score. And, and that being said, you know, I've caught some of the biggest monkeys over time on some small lure. So it's not always all about fishing a big bait. It's, it's about making sure that you're ready, no matter what you're using, that when you hook up with one of those big fish, there is nearly a zero chance that any of your tackle will fail because tackle failure it's just devastating. It's absolutely devastating. It was more common years ago than it is now, but tackle failure in, in all cases is devastating. Yeah. I can honestly say, Joe, that I'm probably guilty of some of that myself, you know, and I, I look at uh, like my line. Sometimes I'm, I'm just like, wow, why am I not changing out this line? And those are important. I think it's a, it's a great topic to bring up. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, we're all guilty of it. You know, it's, it's, it's a human nature thing, but it's like one of those things that, um, you know, if I'm trying to give advice to your listeners as to, you know, what's the best way to score on a big fish, it isn't always about fishing the biggest bait. Like, I mean, right. Not, it's not always about fishing double tens. I mean, it's, 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 if you're fishing double tens, for example, on the wrong tackle and, and you're, you're underpowered, um, 
it's not going to make a huge difference on probably most of the muskies you hook up with, but the one you really want, right? I mean, the, the one you really are after that may, that, you know, that maybe the only time in, in, in your trip or maybe the only time in your lifetime that you ever hook up with, if your tackle isn't right, none of it's going to matter. And, and um, there's still, even with super lines today, there's still broken lines. And, but the, even with today's tackle, what, what quite often happens with today's tackle is that it gives people an excuse to pre- to to, um, to horse fish and pressure fish, and something's got to give. But tackle fairies today are not as common as they were yesterday. You know, in the years when I went, well, man, they were, it was it was commonplace. You know, back way back in the day. I mean, good grief, line breakage, leader leaders failing, hooks coming, hooks coming out of lures. You know, that was commonplace back then. But, you know, it's that, that would be my best advice is that, you know, pick the right water, pick waters, you know, that, that have big fish in them, and then make sure that you are geared up. You are geared up and constantly maintaining all that gear so that when you hook up with the one fish you really want to catch, that you score. I think one of the coolest things here, Joe, just visiting with you this morning, you brought back some memories, and those memories kind of started with your early guide days and talking about how, you know, people didn't have boats at that time. And, and I was one of them, you know, I'd go with my grandfather, I'd go with my dad, and we always had a 9-9 or whatever, and we would bring it to the resort and we'd put it on a resort boat. And it's just so fun to think about, you know, how things have changed over the years. And, and then you go right into the equipment side. It truly, truly, we're, we're so blessed with so many different items that, uh, the, the younger, the older anglers, the immature side of this whole sport was a whole different game. And, and I think uh, for our listeners, um, I know a lot of them are pretty young and probably didn't experience some of the stuff that you're discussing. Yeah, you know, in some ways it's a good thing because I think it's, it's actually helped the growth of the sport because it, the fact that there's not as much frustration and failure and, and um I think there's a higher rate of success, as I guess is what I'm trying to say, with, with in the sport today, and because a lot of this due to education and just good technology and, and good products out there, and, and uh, there's all the information's available to, to be successful in today's world. You just in a world of musky fishing. I'll tell you, to be honest with you guys, a lot of this stuff that I've learned in salt it's in saltwater has transferred well and back and forth because you know the the, the really big fish I'm catching in saltwater down here. So many people don't get these fish in the boat because they're not geared for them. You know, they they hook up with these big redfish down here. They're fishing with spinning gear, light spinning gear. And, you know, the, the, when you hook up with one of these really big fish in saltwater, and by the way, they pull way harder than, than even the biggest muskies. If you're not geared up for it, well, you've got a broken line, and uh, you most of the time you don't even know what you hooked. I mean, yesterday I caught a shark. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So you, you just never know, uh, and uh, but that gives me a you know even the saltwater fishing that I even did with my grandfather when I was when I was younger that gives me a, a perspective on on hunting big fish that's that uh, I'm very blessed to have that because you know I've hooked up with fish that are over 100 pounds in saltwater so you know battling big muskies uh, you know even my in my teenage years I had already caught a lot of big fish in saltwater it helped me an awful lot. Obviously, Joe, you know, we'd love to have you on for a full episode because there's so much we could talk about. But for the purpose of episode 200, so it's not a three-hour long episode, I got to kind of limit everybody to about a half an hour or so. 
Well, uh, yeah, I think the I think the world of you guys and you know in this in this industry and, and it's been so good to me. It's been been good to both both of you guys as well. And uh, I appreciate you spending some time with me here. And and um, I hope our our listeners enjoy what we had to talk about. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. We can't thank you enough for your time. We really do appreciate it. And uh, you know, hopefully at some point today you're out chasing fish again because I know you you move south during the winter. You're one of those smarter fellows, and you're able to do that. And maybe someday I'll I'll be there. But for now, we get to just deal with the snow and cold up here. But although I can't complain too much, it hasn't been so bad this early part of December. Well, you know that's retirement's all about. When you get to my age, you know I shoveled a lot of snow. If you think about it, guys, I shoveled snow for over fifty years. 55 years so being down here and, and chasing big redfish in the winter is uh, kind of like a reward for all for all the years i did shovel snow <laughs> <laughs> absolutely sir well we want to thank you again for your time and uh, hopefully we'll catch up with you again at some point this winter you bet you fellas have a good uh, good christmas season thank you very much joe all right our fourth guest here on episode 200 is none other than al lindner and I mean, I would say you basically need no introduction. Anybody that's picked up a fishing rod should know your name by now. But Al, we really can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule. We understand how busy you are. I mean, because we just talked about it. You're still running your, your day-to-day operations at the young age of 78. You're still coming to the office almost every day on the water, shooting TV shows. And we, we know how you know important your time is. So we, we truly thank you for taking time out of your schedule. Oh, more than happy to be here. More than happy. I love talking about fishing, especially open water when I'm looking at hot water. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, you know, we're going to keep this episode to about a half an hour. That's about what we've been doing on this portion of our our 200th episode. We'd love to have you on for a full episode because, you know, like you and, you know, a lot of the people within your, uh, your category of angler, you guys have been around so long. You've seen so many changes. You've seen so much. You've caught so many big fish that, you know, we'd love to just you know, sit down and chat with you about lots of different topics. But today, you know, let's first off, for anybody that doesn't maybe know you know your history, why don't you kind of give a little bit of, of what you've done and what you're, you know, what you're currently doing. And then we'll kind of dive into some stories about some big fish because I'm sure you've caught plenty. Well, to, to, to brief history, I'm fortunate enough to make my living in fishing industry my entire life. I've never had to work for other than the military. I, I worked for Uncle Sam for a few years. But other than that, I made my living in a fishing business. It started, uh, I had a fishing tackle company when I was in high school in Chicago with my brother. We made jigs and spinnerbaits and we peddled them around locally. And and at that point, my my dream in life was to make a living in the fishing industry. And prior to that, and I spent all my summer vacations in the Hayward area at my grandmother's cabin on Grindstone Lake. And that's where I learned so much about fishing. It had a major impact on my life and having the freedom to do that. And, and when I graduated from high school, I moved up there and uh, did some painting, did some guiding uh, on the area lakes there. And uh, when I was 20 years old, the draft was on. I went into the military. And when I came out of the military, my brother and I dreamed about making, like I said, a living in the fishing industry. And we looked through Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, ended up wandering into Minnesota. Yeah, yeah you know, and, and uh, settled in, in a Brainerd area. What drew me here was all the lakes. There was lakes everywhere. Lakes. I can spend my lifetime here and never fish them all. <laughs> and that was the main reason. 
And we settled in here. We started Lindy Tackle Company. It started as a guide service and led into Lindy Tackle Company. That took five years of my life. Uh, we sold that to the Rayovac Corporation. It was during this period of time I got in the media business, started doing television shows, writing magazines, doing stuff with fishing facts on a regular basis, traveling around, doing seminars, promotional things. Fell in love with the media end of the business. Yeah, you know, did not renew our contract with, with, with the sale of Wendy Tackle Company. We started in Fisherman Communications Network. That took 25 years of my life. And uh, I had four-year non-compete after the sale. I had a contract to work with them for a few a few years to continue to produce television. And uh, when my contract, their non-compete was over, uh, uh, we started a, a, a television show again. Uh, and it started, it was Angling Edge. Yeah, you know, the show, the idea behind it was talk about fishing, freshwater fishing in the area. And because my faith is important to me to have a, a spiritual close, something from the Bible that is inspirational to people that watch the show. And uh, this year, today, as we sit here right now, uh, Angling Edge is 20 years old. So we're celebrating the end of this year. It's our 20th year with Angling Edge. So that's my career in a nutshell. And, uh, uh, I love fishing. I don't know how to do anything else. I don't want to do anything else. And as long as I can get in the boat, I'm going to keep doing it. If I can get in the boat, say some things intelligent on camera, help somebody find and catch some more fish, I'm going to keep doing it, man. <laughs> and I'd say you've done an amazing job at that. So, Al, I do know your faith is important to you. A book I read was called First Light on the Water, something uh, you you wrote, I believe. Is that still in print these days? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And Harvest House did a rerun on, on that. It was out of print twice, and then they redid it again. So there was some available, yes. So if people are looking for a, a faith-based fishing book, check out First Light on the Water. It was definitely yep, one I read. Punch it up. Yep. yep. I've read that quite a while back. It's a, it's a great book. Um, Thank you. you know, Al, this isn't necessarily something I wanted to talk about on the podcast. It wasn't the plan, but you know, you've been doing this and you've been making a living in fishing for so long. Do you have any advice for somebody that's just starting out looking, you know, they have the same passion that you do to make a, a living in fishing. Cause I, I mean, some could argue it's actually easier now to make a living in fishing than it was when you first came in. I would agree with that statement. It is easier today. Some the, the changing environment is vast, but the, the whole world of social media created a wealth of new opportunities. I may, I basically, my whole career was done in traditional media, print, television, radio. And then when social media came on the scene, you, you know, we're right in the maze of transitioning that stuff uh, out now. Now you have to do both to a large extent and social media creates so many opportunities it's amazing. And it, it, it is amazing. So you need to learn how to communicate. Number one, it's important to be able to catch fish. You have to know how to catch fish and be able to tell, to talk about it intelligently, to converse with somebody, whether you're writing something, a, a magazine article, something on a social media newsletter or something like that, like that, to develop communication skills to take what you're able to do and be able to tell it in a way that'll help somebody else understand it and apply it on the water. So, I mean, those factors, but number one of all of this thing, you have to be able to catch some fish with consistency. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is a business. Some people, you, as a social media influencer, you are the company or the corporation, you know, if you're dreaming of making 
uh, a buck in other aspects of the industry, guiding. I know so many people that have gotten into the business because of guide, guiding and tournament fishing, and it, it transi- transitioned into jobs with other bigger companies. And, and so I'm just giving you just some just high, highlights. Guiding teaches you so much. You get developed people skills like never before. <laughs> My guiding years had a huge influence on everything I've ever done and still do. And it's just uh, uh, that the social media world has opened up lots of doors. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that 100%. I mean, like you said, it's definitely the uh, the opportunities I feel are endless nowadays. And, you know, back in the day, you used to be sometimes constricted to a nine to five work schedule or whatever. And now with the, the opportunities the Internet's provided, you can literally set your own schedule and, and operate whenever you want. And, you know, some of the barriers that were held back on getting seen aren't they're not there there's no barriers anymore for you to you want to start producing your own tv show pick up a camera and and stop putting it on youtube you don't have to have you know uh, what is it twenty thousand dollars or more to buy up time on a network or any of that stuff it's just like i said the the barriers are are much less the fences are a lot lower no question about that but i will i will say this to anybody looking if your goal in life is to make a lot of money the fishing industry, per se, is not the place to go. And it is a lifestyle business if you want to get the most out of it. And you want to make it a very comfortable living doing something that you love to do. It's a good place to be. The people are fantastic. and The lifestyle is fantastic. It's a phenomenal industry to be able to make a bucket. But if you want, if your whole goal in life is to get rich and make money, go to Silicon Valley in California and dream about fishing when you retire 30 years later. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. So let's talk about muskies. And primarily you wanted to tell us a couple stories. Let's talk about your first muskie. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about that this, this, this morning prior to this call. I just said a little bit earlier, I spent all my summer vacations from the age of four years old on the shores of Grindstone Lake at my grand, my grandparents' cabin uh, on the lake. And, and my bu- buddy, his name was, was Mike, Mike Petty. His uncle owned a resort in, uh, in a little 3-2 bar on Grindstone Valhalla Resort. I think they had five cabins and a 3-2 bar and a bait shop. And, uh, uh, you know, we hung around together. Our job, we'd go in there if I to get free bait and every, everything. We'd clean up the minnow tanks and do all of that. And he had to get that done. And we can get, get our free bait and we can go fish and poke around. <laughs> and so I grew up in that environment. And I uh, learned how to fish grindstone, Couderay, Johnson Lake, the flowages, yeah, you know, poking around on all those lakes in there. And all I did was fish, basically fish, 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 fish. And I moved up there, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, right after I graduated from high school, and stayed there a couple of years, and in, in, in that area, we were about what we, meaning Mike and I, we fished almost every day, and uh, you know, we're really good at catching uh, a smallmouth bass on night crawlers. We had that wired out pretty good. We learned spots. We were able to do that to catch a bunch of big jumbo perch. We knew seasonal areas that the perch were at. Once in a while, get into some nice crappies. But we would see and dream about catching a big muskie. We'd go up to the Milwaukee Inn off of Highway K, and you'd go into a bar. They had a bar and lounge up the restaurant there, and they had this freezer. 
in there and you'd go back in there and whenever anybody would catch a big fish, you would go in there and we'd go up there a couple of days a week, we'd walk up there and my nose would get glued to this thing. And you'd see a big crappie in there, a big bass, uh, a giant walleye coming out of Couturet. And there would always be, be one or two muskies in there that were caught. And we would drool over that. One of these days, we're going to go muskie fishing. So we made the decision. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go fish muskies. We're done with the smallmouth. We're done with the perch and the occasional walleye. And we're going to go, 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 go muskie fishing until we each catch a muskie. That's the goal. We're not going to stop until we do it. Lo and behold, our first day on the water, we each caught our first muskie. They both came came off of Elbar, drifting the Elbar. Mike got his on a pikey minnow. I got mine on a bucktail. Both fish were in the mid-30-inch range. And we were hooked on muskie fishing forever. <laughs> and that was, the, that was the magic of that fish. And it is a magical fish. Uh, the biggest muskie that I ever had, had. I got a 53-inch personal that was up on Lexor in, in uh, trolling. And, uh, but uh, one of the most interesting stories uh, I had, my one of my friends happened to be uh, an investment advisor for us. He manages our investments. This was quite a while ago. And he had an, a client from Bismarck, North Dakota. His name was Mort, Mort Bank, and he owns a McDonald's place up there, avid fisherman. And it was early November here in Brainerd, and they were at a business meeting, and he called me the day before, and he says, hey, can you take Mort and I out fishing? He loves to fish. He'd like to meet you. So I go, lo and behold, I, I go below the dam here in Brainerd, and uh, we're throwing jigs for walleyes. And uh, he hooks a fish by a little hot water discharge that's pour, pouring in from under the dam. And there's a bunch of big buffalo in there. Usually, I figure you could see it was a big fish. I thought he snagged the buffalo. And my hands are cold. I don't want to lift the anchor, move anymore again. And the fish is just swimming real lazily like it didn't even know it was hooked. All of a sudden, it made, makes a run. And I could see it running away and a line coming up, line coming up. And I could see the silhouette of the fish breaking, going away from me. It wasn't fast. It just kind of swam and broke the surface. And I realized that it was either a muskie or a big pike. One of the two. Now I got excited. Well, make a long story short, we chased this fish all over that low. He ended on six-pound test line on a, a twister, the yellow twister tail on a quarter-ounce jig head. And it was, a, when we finally landed the fish, waited, got, did all of the procedure. It was a field and stream line class record for many, many years. I don't know if it still is or not. And there he had the fish mounted in a big glass cage up in Bismarck, North Dakota inside the McDonald's store. In it. But the thing is, initially, the story behind it, I told him, just break your line. I don't want to lift the anchor. I'm cold. My hands are cold. And they were touching. fish just snapped the line on. <laughs> and he's, no, hell, I want to see it. I want to see it. That's okay. So I'm chasing this thing around until when I seen it. And then we finally got excited and landed it. But it was a great story. I'll never forget it. That's absolutely incredible, Al. You know, the cool thing about this sport uh, some of those types of stories, right? And, you know, as anglers, we kind of all have those similar types of stories, but, I mean, that's remarkable. And it seems so crazy. I mean, I, I got a good friend of mine who um, who had a young daughter, probably eight, nine years old, sitting on a dock, and she's fishing for bluegills with, uh, with a worm and a jig head, kind of similar to what you're talking about, and she ends up landing muskie. So those stories are out there. That's awesome that you share. What is amazing to me, guys, is the mystique that a muskie has. 
it, and it, it's one of those rare fish. Once you see it and get bit by one and land it or have a bite by the side of the boat, you never, ever forget it. You never, it, it, is, it, it is a lifetime memory. The only other fish that is like that, it would be a tarpon. And if you've ever, anybody that loves the fish, would you like to watch tarpon fishing? You see this fish jump out of the water, shaking its gills and in slow motion. And there you I want to go do that. So you may never go tarpon fishing, but you will watch tarpon, tarpon being caught and dream about going there. And muskies are the same thing. When I travel south, I spent a lot of time in the south, um, southwest over the years bumping into tournament fishermen and everything. They talk about the show where you're at. They say, we love your smallmouth stuff, but man, the muskie, we would love to come and catch a muskie. And you hear this all over the place. The fish truly is a magical fish. It is amazing. Well, we could say it's magical, Al, but uh, in some fashion or form, it's probably poison. I think we've all been poisoned with that. It truly puts a bug in your ear. and It's something that you can't reverse. And that's a good thing. <laughs> One thing in a musk world that I, I, I enjoy seeing uh, now is is how many guys are fishing with their girlfriends or their wives as as their fishing partners. You see that a lot. We see it on the lakes up here a lot. Well, I, I'm no different, Al. You know, I have a wife that uh, has provided me several, well, 18 years with musky mayhem tackle. And previous to that, we fished together. She grew up fishing. Obviously, I grew up fishing. And there isn't uh, anything more special than being able to share a boat with uh, a loved one, that's for sure. I think that kind of brings up a a unique part to uh, the whole Linder world. I mean, if you think about it, the dynamics of what you've done with family. I mean, it's truly amazing. Not many businesses can do what you guys have done when it comes down to uh, running something like you've ran for how many years with family. That dynamic's got to be kind of a strain. For me, that is, is part of the blessings of the industry. But both Ron and I, we, and, and all the kids were raised. And in fact, Jimmy and, and Danny and I were talking about that just a little while ago before we got on a phone call here because I have to address some on the past present at our Christmas party next week for a lot of people. But they grew up from the time that they grew up, everything in their life was fishing, but pouring sinkers when Lindy Tackle Company was in its infancy. Every one of the boys did a little bit of guiding at some point in their life. They all got involved in the media business and fell in love with it. And the fishing has been their way of life, but the key was being exposed at a very young age. And, and that's a, a key thing. The quicker you can expose a young person to the sport of fishing, the better it is for, for them. They will fall in love. And the key to that is to catch a bite, to get a bite. It helps a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, so it that doesn't get boring to them at a young age. But once they get hooked, they contribute to the industry all their life, you know, in some positive way. Help build another business opportunity that's never existed in the world of fishing, create one of the newest, greatest uh, uh, revolutionary fishing lures they ever ever hit the market. You know what I'm talking about, a life-changing thing that changed your life. You come up with a bait that the fish can't can't refuse. (laughs) These stories are endless, endless, but to be able to spend your lifetime 
with a family member in a business that you truly, truly love to do and the people you work with, you look forward to going to work with them every single day. Everybody is family besides even blood, the people that you work with. And it's been a, a, a huge blessing to me in my life to be able to spend so much time with so many good people doing something that we love. It has never worked even during the challenging times, financial challenges, health issues that we have to deal with. Yeah, you know, these things, it is still uh, uh, an amazing blessing. I think one of the key components that we're talking about is the earlier, the better to get kids involved. And I know I've been asked many, many times, you know, how did you get your daughter into this sport? Um, and, and it's not something that uh, she's maybe as hardcore as, as maybe you or I. But at the end of the day, I think it's really about developing a foundation. Once that foundation is developed, that is a lifetime. And they might fade from it, but that's always in the back of their minds. that They come back full circle at some point in their lives. So yeah, it's an interesting point. And that is the future of fishing. And, and when we all, all three of us sitting here talking right now, are involved in that industry, it's important that those come up right behind everybody else. For sure. For sure. You know, Al, one thing we've asked a few of our other guests is like their mentality for when they're chasing big fish versus just chasing a fish. You know, does your mentality change or you kind of just go about your process and, you know, some days you catch big fish and other days you don't? <laughs> Very interesting question. But we all start wanting numbers. We all want to start, you start with numbers. After you get fairly consistent, yeah, yeah, you know, you know pretty good I can go out and catch. Uh, if I go to this lake and throw this bait in this weather condition, everything is right. It's a good bet. Um, I, I can get two or three fish today, maybe see five or six fish. And, yeah, you know, and these fish are from uh, 36 to 42 inches, okay? And, and that's my fun. You're getting bit. The excitement is there. You're seeing fish. But pretty soon after a while, when you can get pretty consistent, you start looking, okay, I want to get that. I want to get to that 45, 46 inch range. And you start fishing, you, you start tuning in a little bit more to a body of water that has a shot at those bigger fish because not all those lakes are like that. Yeah, you know, you got big fish lakes and you got number numbers lakes, especially in Wisconsin as an example. And now the Dakotas are on fire for muskies. What is happening there in the next five, ten years, that thing's gonna bust wide open there. Yeah, you know, on some things that are shaking out there. And but but everybody starts. You got to get numbers to build confidence and have exciting an exciting time. But pretty soon, everything goes. How do I catch the biggest fish? And you start looking at those bigger fish. You change times, condition. You pay more attention to the moon phases. You go to the right bodies of water. They grow big fish, and it gets to the point you don't care about catching two or three fish in a day and seeing five or six. Yeah, you know, you start getting to the point there, well, I want that big fish. You go from the 35 inches to the 40 inches to the 45 inches. Then you start looking at that 48 incher, and then you start getting to the magic number of 50 plus. Yeah, you know, and we have more 50 inch muskies in these lakes than we have ever had in our life in this business. There's that many big fish out there. We've never seen this. When I was growing up as a kid, you've never seen this amount of big fish. And it's an amazing that the muskie fishery today, for these big numbers of big fish, it's the best it's ever been. I'm talking the 50-inch plus mark. 50, you're going on bodies of water. In the old days, you dream, you'd fish on Lake of the Woods all year and catch oodles of muskie and never get a legitimate 50-incher. 
Pinators lakes all over the place that, that you're on the water. You have a reasonable shot at a 50-inch fish. That's an amazing statement in the musky world when you stop to think about it. And those of us that have been in this business all their life, you look back, it is so exciting to see that it is the heydays. There's so many big fish out there. It's a phenomenal story in a world of fishing as far as management goes and everything to get to the point to where we're at today from a quality standpoint. But you get to the point you want to catch that 50-incher. And then after that, now you sc- then you start working. <laughs> but the natural run, next run, I need that 53-incher. And then that elusive, can I go to a body of water and have that 55-incher? <laughs> it, it's exciting to think about it. But it, those fish are there now. That's the other thing. They are there. And not far in, in numbers of bodies of water that, that the sport has changed that much for quantity and quality. You know, let me ask you another question. When, you know, now that you've caught, I don't know how, however many you've caught hundreds, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, does it ever get old? Like if you get it, if you get like a 36 inch on, does that, do you have the same thrill nowadays that you would have back in the day? I mean, does that, does that ever fade or not? No, it does not. Not in fact, there's days I, I want to go out and I just want to catch some skis. I want to get a bite. And if I'm, I'm running, if, I, if the fish are 38 to 42 inch fish, and I can coach three, three or four of them in a five or six hour day of fishing, I get I, I get excited about that because when I'm fishing those big, big, big fish on the lakes and the times that you have to get out there, the weather conditions, yeah, 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 yeah. You, you know, I want to put some time in the odds drastically shrink on getting a monster. Yeah, 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 you know, but they're there. You know, I'll do that for a while, but I still like to get bit every now and then. Yeah, yeah, I enjoy getting bit. Yeah, yeah, you know, five, six, seven fish days on some of those Canadian lakes and even some of the lakes here in in my home area in Minnesota. Uh, Numbers are still exciting, especially when you're talking about a fish like like a muskie. It's not like going catching walleyes or bass. It's a whole different deal. And if the fish are 35, 37 inch, 38 inches, you know, I watch some of these television shows. Uh, 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 well, I'll, I'll name some of some, some of them. Mike Keyes is an example. What I really like about Mike Keyes' show is he goes to some offbeat places in a day of fishing, and, and you know, what he's catching is a 34, a 37, and a 39-inch fish. And dumps. But he's in some really offbeat places, They're not the traditional high-profile musky water that everybody knows about, that if you're on there at a peak time, fishing really right, the weather conditions are, are conducive, you're, you're, you're going to catch a, a, a 45 plus inch fish. But, but you see, and you see, you see it, they're great shows. We like seeing that. But somebody like Keith, I like the show. And so do the guys in my office because it's different. It's different. You know, <laughs> you know and, and, and uh, uh, there's something to be said for numbers of fish and the adventure of the water that hasn't been fished much before. Just a, a comment. <laughs> I think there's a key component to that too, Al. You know, when you talk about Keys Outdoors, the key to that whole success, in my opinion, is Mike himself. He's, a, he's an unbelievable storyteller. He's telling a story about that whole mission that he's on, right? And Absolutely. It, I think that's what makes it exciting, and that's what makes it uh, the show that it is. And I don't think just anybody could go out and, and copy that. I, I know myself, I couldn't copy it. So. I agree with you. I agree with you. He is the character that makes it happen. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I may add one more. 
the, the musky world, we've got some real characters in this segment of our sport. That's the best way I could describe them, characters. Uh, that's another one of the really interesting things about the musky fishing community. We bump into some real characters. Couldn't <laughs> <laughs> have said it better myself. All right, Al. Well, we, we really, truly can't thank you enough for coming out and making an appearance here on episode 200. Hopefully we'll get you back on at some point. Like you said, this winter is kind of long. We'd love to, you know, pick your brain on lots of different topics you've obviously seen. And like I said, your generation, you know, the group of anglers around you, you've seen more changes in fishing than any other group I would imagine will ever see potentially in the history. I can't imagine you know, I can't imagine that the growth is going to continue as fast as what you guys had seen. I mean, it was slow growth, but, you know, in one person's lifetime, I can't imagine you're going to see that much change. You know, we're we're already, I feel like we're pushing the envelope on, on rods and braids and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I just can't imagine you're going to see a whole lot more. But so we want to thank you for that, Al. And before I let you go, if, you know, people want to find more of the content that you guys put out, how do they go about doing that? Well, you could, you know, we'll start airing the first quarter of the year. First and, and second quarter is all original programming. We're on numerous Fox Sports networks here in the Upper Midwest. Where we're on, uh, you know, we're on Valley, Wisconsin, Bad Bad Valley, Minnesota. Minnesota. We, we play on uh, Outdoor Channel. We play on Pursuit. We have some programming that goes on Sportsman's Channel and uh, uh, some other Fox networks. So. And then you can go online and just 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 check any, anything there. Go take a look at anglingedge.com. After the shows air the following week, we put them up online. So that's where we could be found. Well, Al, we'll, I'll thank you one more time for taking time out of your schedule. We hope that you and your family have a Merry Christmas, and we hope to catch up with you again at some point this winter. Same here. God bless everybody. Be safe out there. Have a good Christmas. Thank you very much, sir. All right, our last guest for episode 200, certainly not the least, one of our favorite return guests that we could have on, and we couldn't have episode 200 without Dick. Dick Pearson, we uh, thank you for coming on. Before we start, though, Carrie wants to say hi to you. Not She's not here. She wanted me to say hi to you because she couldn't be with us today. She's busy working while Brad and I are playing all day. But anyways, Dick. Uh- we really thank you for taking time out of your schedule again for talking, you know, fishing with us. It's always fun. And, you know, this one here, we're just going to kind of let you go. We're just going to tell stories about either fish or people. I know that we <laughs> pre-recording, you had some uh, excellent stories to tell, and you're always one of our favorite guests to have on, Dick. So thanks again for coming on. Sure. Yeah, that's great, guys. Thanks for having me. I uh, I sort of thought through uh, a couple of things, and we'll see where it goes. There's some danger involved in, in musky fishing, and uh, particularly when you're fishing alone. So I thought I'd talk about a couple of those if I can get to them. One would be uh, one danger would be releasing fish, and I've got some experience with how dangerous that can be. And the other would be uh, a basic a danger would be falling in when you're alone. <laughs> so I've got some experience in that. <laughs> And that score too. And if I get time, I'll I'll uh, I'll touch on that. But with respect to those those dangers, I guess a little background. I I've always enjoyed fishing alone. And nowadays, uh, gosh, I'm I'm alone eighty ninety percent of the time. And uh, you know, when you get to be when you get to my age, you you lose friends, <laughs> both by death and by, and by being old and and ornery. But so I'm alone a lot, and, and I enjoy it. I always have enjoyed it. 
so that's part of the background. The other, the other thing that's always been uh, part of me, except for a few years when I was guiding and I had to have pictures and I got a little carried away with my ego and so on. I, I pretty much, and I'm not being judgmental about anything or anyone or any practice or procedure that people use with respect to fish and, 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 and nets or pictures or, or bump boards or whatever. I just have my own way of doing things. And for most of my fishing career, it's always been to keep the fish in the water. I'm back to that now. Unless I'm with a friend who gets a very big fish, none of the fish uh, in my boat come out of the water anymore. And what that means is, and I don't use nets. And I, I can't, I couldn't tell you the last time I used a net. I've, I carry a net. And the theory of me carrying this great big monstrous frable around is that if I ever get WR, I'd have a chance. Um, and of course, I'm never going to get WR, number one. And number two, I probably couldn't net it anyway. But the nets I have found through trial and error when I'm alone are more difficult for me and they're more difficult on the fish. So you can argue that and, and, and so on until you're blue in the face, but that's, that's my practice and that's just by way of background. So my releases can easily, you know, become troublesome. Well, in, in the net or out of the net, you can get yourself in trouble. And the net is a complication for me when I'm alone. Believe it or not, I'm much better off. I'm much less likely, in my opinion, to hurt myself or the fish if I don't use the net. And then a in a nutshell, what I what I do on releases is I've got a glove, got sort of a steel mesh glove or uh, an older thin leather glove that uh, on, on one hand I, I get the fish in and I try to keep it I try to keep it moving. If it's small fish and most of mine are, unfortunately, I'll probably even keep it. I'll get a hold of the grip, uh, the top of the leader, the, the the swivel or whatever, pinch it between my thumb and the forefinger. And I'll keep the fish moving, and then I'm I'm getting it released with with a grab it, you know that long that long tool. And I've used that sort of like some people think it's like a new thing, but geez, Frank Walsh at Bay Store, the owner of Bay Store, was selling them I know twenty some years ago. So I've, for years and years and years, I've used that. And with that combination, I'm you know that's that's a brief story of the release. I I, I usually don't have to even touch the fish and I can do it all by keeping the fish moving uh, even if it's just moving head side to side on bigger fish I, I rarely have to go in and grab the fish anymore if they're hooked bad then you got to go in and I get my what I call a leech like death grip on them and on the, on the jaw and so on so I, the chances of me getting horribly hooked are substantially reduced from my old procedures and, and I'll touch on that here in a, in a minute the problem comes with certain fish and certain conditions and so on and man things can go south in a hurry so i i thought i'd i'd quickly go over two very bad incidents that have happened to me that that could have been you know i mean it, it could have one or maybe both of them could have been fatal if it, things had gone you know gone worse than they did with that background here here's a couple of incidents of how I've gotten badly hooked. I probably get get a hook in me. Uh, oh, I don't know. I still get a hook in me every once in a while. Usually it's a small pike or something that'll get me with one treble or, you know, one hook of a 
trouble or something. Uh, but probably once every maybe two years, I'll get hooked. But they're not they're not bad, and usually they're it's a it's a one hook and and it's sticking out, and you you know you cut the barb and back it out and put some neosporin on it and a band aid, and you're you're back to fishing. And same with the friends. Uh, I had a, had a friend get hooked this year. As a matter of fact, now problem comes is people say, well, you can push them through. The problem comes. It's not easy. You're better if the barb goes all the way through and comes out. You just flip it and back it out, and away you go, you know. But things, things can go horribly wrong. So the first incident I want to talk about is was years and years ago, back in the 80s on Laxtool. I'm fishing with a, with a good friend, and he's a big, strong guy. He, at that time, uh, well, Brad, you know him, Steve uh, Fuller. He, at that time, I think, had the Muskie's Inc. weight record. He had, within a year of this incident, had caught, I think it was a certified 50-pounder or something, and he had caught it on Laxul. So anyway, him and I were fishing. We're talking about that incident, and we're on this spot, and uh, I'm casting a – I used to throw – the big believers, a lot, I used to cast them. And they're a pain in the butt to cast, but they're a tremendous bait and working in the weeds and backing off rocks. And, but I, we're casting relatively shallow, and I get this fish on that ultimately turned out to be 55 inches and I think it was 46 pounds, 46 and a half or something, um, a day and a half later. So it was, you know, it was a big fish. Well, anyway, it was my boat, no net in the, in the boat, Fuller says, man, that's a big fish. That's, that's bigger than, that, than my 50 and so on and we're on and on. And I, he said, we're going to get some good pictures of this. And I'm saying, yeah, well, go ahead, take him. There he is alongside the boat. No, no, none of this damn fierce in the water BS. And he's a big guy. And next thing you know, make it, to abbreviate this, he, he reaches down and he gets the, uh, he, he gets his, slides his hand in there and gets the death grip on, on, side that the believer isn't on the believer if i recall correctly is hooked still hooked the believer's still in the fish you know the big guy lifts it and he's now he's now he's got it vertical in the boat and he's saying here take it i said oh you know hell no that isn't gonna work and it's like someone handing you a hot cup of coffee but they've got the stem and you 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 don't know what to do well i i grabbed the, the hot end anyway he just said put your Slide your hand under mine. I'll pull mine out. We'll take a picture, release it. Da 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 da. I'm like a damn fool. I I tried it. Well, I never did get my hand in there properly. He pulled his hand out. The fish flopped. Buried two trebles in the back of my hand. Then then flopped and went over the side, and almost took me with. Um, he literally had a hold of me. So the outcome would have been uncertain in the water. You know. In, I don't know how deep it was there, but over your head, obviously. And anyway, we ended up, two trebles went in. The trebles went in, or the, the hooks themselves went in, hit the bone. Then the weight of the fish took me out and then pulled all the tendons and muscles and so on without ripping them out together down one side. Now I'm in the water, and my hand's in the water with the fish. The fish is going nuts. And, uh, you know, the old saying, butt in the water type deal, literally was. And I didn't know what to do. And he's hollering, he's hanging on to me. And, you know, we're both 
we're both shook up at this point. And I'm screaming, and, you know, was, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I said, well, I got to go down. Hang on to me. I got to go down on the other hand, avoid that, hopefully avoid that that believer, and I got to get grip on the other side myself, and then you're going to have to pull me and the fish in back in the boat. Well, that's sort of what we did. We got the fish back up to the, with the head. My hands and the, and, the, and the head were on the gunnel, and then he took my big bolt cutters, which I'll talk about shortly, I think, and we ended up killing the fish, but every time he was hitting it at the base of the, the head or the neck there, uh, you can imagine what the fish was doing and what I was doing. And then the way we went, uh, I think I, we were staying in a place called Tom's Cabin, that ship, I think, and uh, we went back, packed up, and he took me to, to to look out, and then we had some issues there with getting treated. And meanwhile, he had called my wife, and she's always been in the medical field. She said, pack him up, put it in ice, bring him home. And uh, so off we went eventually, uh, you know, got back to uh, Walker, and there's there's the first little incident with uh, I mentioned about Al. Al Linda, you you said that Al was one of your your guests, and uh, I haven't seen Al in years, unfortunately. But I'll never forget we walked in. I was still a bloody mess, pants and shirt, and we walked into Reed's, and uh, he happened to be there, and he said, "Oh my God, look at Pearson. He looks just like Jeffrey Dahmer." And this. Those of you who remember, Jeffrey Dahmer was a serial killer <laughs> from Wisconsin who, <laughs> who who was one bloody character. But anyway, um, so that's incident number one. And while I wasn't alone, there was obviously a lot of things that we could have done to avoid that. And I'll try to get to those later. Now, the second incident that I want to talk about to show the seriousness of this, and this is alone, involved was... More, much more recently, and I was on Lake of the Woods, um, probably uh, early, around 2000 maybe, and we had a cabin on there, my wife and I, next to Walsh's uh, base store camp. And I was out, and, and sad to say, it involved the first pink cowgirl I had, all pink double tin. Anyway, I, I get this fish, it's probably about, it was a nice one, probably 48-inch type. Damn, I I got careless. I don't remember exactly how I was doing it. Um, first of all, I didn't have a designated workstation back in those days, and so I was leaning over the front, so you're, you're kind of off balance. And Anyway, I, again, make a long story short, I got the front treble, which is the one that will get you on those double tens usually. I got the front treble buried really bad. And now I've got to get that fish in the boat. What I ended up, it, and I, and two of the three hooks on the front treble were buried and out of sight. One was just emerging, one was totally buried. Again, nerves, arteries, veins, whatever is on the back of your hand, they're all of them involved again. And, and again, you could hear the, the hooks grating on the bone and da-da-da-da-da. Another really bad one. And this one, I could not cut. I'm alone, and I could not cut it with the nippix. I just didn't have the strength. I had to take the whole hook, not just one, one of the one of the trebles. Couldn't do it. So I knew I had to get my big bolt cutter involved. And uh, again, 
I'll abbreviate the anguish involved in this deal and the blood and whatnot, but I somehow got it pinned with the hand that's hooked in my knee, got the fish pinned. I then got the big bolt cutters, and again, some of this could have been avoided if I'd been back in a work designated workstation, but I had to scramble to with the fish um, to, to find the big bolt cutters. And, but I got the I got the, the cutters in place. You know, you got to open it really wide on those big red bolt cutters. And I had I had one end against my chest, and I used the arm my other good hand and arm to uh, leverage and snap the, the, uh, the hook off, which then got the fish back in the water and the fish swam away. And, and then, then the drama started. I got back to the, I, in those days, our cabin was next to, uh, to the base store, but I, I kept my boat right at Frank's dock and gas up there and all that stuff. I got back and Frank was there. It was the middle of the day. And anyway, we called the usual Roso clinic and told him we we're coming in. He's going to give me a ride to Roso. And, you know, I'm sure Frank knew it. I knew it. it was, I knew it was a bad one. Um, I still got, you know, I still, I still had the hooks in, two of the hooks in. Away we go to Roso and, again, trying to abbreviate this, they would not touch it because of the, the risk of the nerves and everything that was involved, vessels or veins, whatever. They wouldn't. They wouldn't do it. Doctor just said, "No, I'm. I can't do it. You, you need a hand specialist." And uh, so I, I don't remember if the doctor did it or Frank did it, but somehow we found a specialist in Grand Forks, what four hours away, I think. And away we went. Again, Frank, gracious enough to uh, to drive and take me. And so we ended up in Grand Forks with a specialist, and uh, I think, if I recall, Frank. He never would sit in a procedure like that again. I <laughs> think he took it worse than I did. But it was uh, another gruesome ordeal. And both of those I came out eventually. The last tool thing, I had trouble bow hunting that fall, I remember. And, but I got full use back and, and, and did it on this one. But there, there are some bad incidents. And you can see how any of those could have gone really bad, really, really bad if the you know, things didn't fall into place afterwards. If the fish had had flopped and or if Fuller hadn't grabbed me, that one would have been really bad. But if those veins and whatnot get torn out, and I think we're close on both of them. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know the outcome. But then I don't want to know the outcome. But the point is, there's some danger. So without rambling another hour or something, I'll just, tell you what I do now and, and hopefully people can get some value out of that and, and avoid that because there really are risks involved and when you're fishing all in muskies you can get hurt and you should be prepared for it and you should after all the years of experience I should know better than some of the stuff that uh, I did in both of those incidents so to be quick I'll just say now uh, I don't lean over the front anymore and part of that is age and balance and so on but it's also that you it, it's really easy to go over the if you're if you're kneeling up in the front deck and things go south. It's really easy to get wet, and so I would urge anyone, young or not, you know, to do your releasing back in the boat. Now I have a I have a what I call a workstation behind behind the seat, between the casting deck and the seat. All my tools are there. I can stand. I can lean over, get to the fish real easy, 
I'm no no loss of balance, no problem. I've got the you know I've got the grab it, the gloves, uh, the spreaders, the nipix, the big bolt cutter, a first aid kit, neospore, and I've, it's all there. I can reach it all from one location, and I'm lower down to the water and. Hopefully, I'll never need anything other than the occasional nipex to clip one hook or something if the grabbit can't handle it. That's uh, oh, and the other thing. The other thing is a big thing is is consider going barbless if you're alone and you're in an adverse condition. Like I've got when I'm alone, I've got a set of cowgirls where sometimes all the hooks are pinched down, but certainly when I'm alone. The front treble is pinched down, and that's no problem. If it, if it gets in there, pull it out. It's not a big deal. Now, if it's really, really windy, I might only it'd be all barbless, and I would have designated other baits, whether it's a tube or uh, a sewage or whatever, uh, where I would have modified hooks, and they'd be, they'd be barbless. And on occasion, if I'm fishing windy shorelines or something or, or, or shallow reefs, I, I might pull out some modified baits where I've got just two big, you know, sea wash singles that are pinched down. So there, there are things you can do with a low, when you're alone that you should do that just, you know, just make, make sense. The other thing is, man, don't rush. And the one way that's really, really allowed me to slow down is, is the spot lock. I didn't realize how important spot lock is in the way I fish. I mean, now I, I'm not worried about drifting onto this or that or, or, or whatever. If I hit spot lock and I'm away from that, so I can't bump it, and I'm back in my workstation, I mean, I've, I've, got, I've got no hurry. The fish is better off, and I'm better off if I take my time, and, you know, and, and do it in a, in a you know, organized fashion. So that's what I that's what I do. The other, the, I'm probably at 15 already, guys. But the, the other thing is, when you're alone, obvious risk is falling out. You, you think it, it's impossible; it simply can't happen, but it can, particularly in wind. And I, so, I, I, just a couple of comments. I've had some bad experiences. I had one really bad experience where. And, and what happens was, is you're up front, if you're running the trolling motor, and you're using a foot pedal like I do, call it a rogue wave or whatever, but in high waves, it's easy to lose your balance. And normally, that's no big deal. You know, you're a little bit off balance, maybe a little bit here and there. But uh, another thing is to have a clear deck up front, because in my incident, what I did is I stepped on the handle. I had another rod, a bunch of them piled up there. And I had a, a, a wave hit, and I, you know, temporarily had a loss of balance. Moved my foot, and the heel landed on the cork part of another rod at a bad angle, and just kind of rolled. And the next thing I know, I'm wet. And so here's here's the here's what I want to impart to you. There's an argument that could be made that you're better off if you're in on big water alone in high waves and the nearest land is a mile or two or four or five away, you could create an argument that you'd be better off without a uh, <laughs> uh, life vest than, than having one. And the reason for that would be if it was 
really call a late fall or something. Well, first of all, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fish alone anymore late fall. I just, when I'm by late fall, I mean near, near ice up. I just wouldn't do it anymore. Um, at least on a casting thing. But I guarantee you one thing until you the experience that you will find out in high waves that you will play hell catching your boat. You would think, oh, geez, I'll just swim, swim over the boat. No, you won't. Try it sometime. Have, have a friend with a boat and do it in warm summer on a windy day. Bail out and see if you can catch your boat. It's not easy. And by the time you do, I can tell you, you're going you're gonna to have a heck of a time getting in. Because you, you will likely be drained of strength. And so my advice there is simple. Get to the back of the boat and take the elevator. Stand on your, your skeg and hit the trim and tilt and bring yourself into the boat. But if, you, if you've got trim and tilt. But anyway, um, the point is, I guess I'll quit the rambling, is when, you, when you're fishing alone, think it all through. Like, like for instance, now, I would, uh, now I, I, we've got pretty much got cell coverage all over, all over Lake of the Woods. Little sketchy, a couple of spots, but if if I'm going to go way out somewhere now at my age, I I either am in an area where I know I'm likely to have cell coverage, or I would bring my uh, Garmin inReach where I could get an emergency signal out of you know with my age and condition, who the hell knows? But uh, but my wife my wife has one back back at the cabin, and uh, so I would I would have a I guess what I'm saying is if you're on big water in remote areas, have a way to get help. Just common sense. That technology is available now, and I, I would certainly avail yourself of it uh, if you're doing it. So does that bring anything, any questions you guys want to ask or, or anything? You know, we be, beforehand, you had, when you mentioned uh, you had talked to Al Lindner, um, I've got a... Uh, I've got something that I've felt kind of guilty about <laughs> for for decades, and uh, it involves Al. And I might as well just spit it out. He'll he'll hear this, and it it all came out well. But boy, <laughs> it could have really gone south. And it's it's totally embarrassing to me. But what the heck? So this, uh, I guess I'll speak to Al. I, Al, you probably don't remember this, but uh, one of the first times I did a TV segment for you guys at Enfish, you know, way back when, I don't know when that was been, 70s, 80s, I can't remember, is we were at the Northwest Angle, and uh, I wasn't all that familiar with that part of the lake. I mean, I was pretty familiar, but no, I wasn't like Doug Johnson, for instance, at that time. So if you recall, we wanted to fish out of the Lund. You were, back then, you were, you still are sponsored by Lund. And so I had a Yarcraft. I met you guys. I had a Yarcraft with the tiller. I got in in the lund with you guys. And Stane and I were fishing. I can't remember who was camera person with. And we were fine fishing around the angle and so on. And then for some reason, we ended up and we took off. And we were in the uh, Bishop Bay area. And I was familiar with Big Narrows North. I was familiar, familiar around almost everything there, Johnson Passage and the, the angle itself, no problem. But there was an area in there around Bishop Bay where I just wasn't that familiar. And we ended up over there. I, I don't remember how or why, 
then it started to storm and rain. Well, what I've got to fess up to is I got completely turned around at one point, and I'm driving the Lund, and you're trailing in my yardcraft. And I got to tell you, we went 20 minutes, half hour, wide open in an area I didn't have a clue where we were. And we probably missed 10 reefs and underwater obstructions by inches, and we all all could have died. And I felt horrible ever since, but I never was going to admit it. And eventually, you know, five, 10 minutes later, I recognized, oh, now I know where I am again, and we were fine. But there was a period of time, Al, where your life was up for grabs. But <laughs> guys, I hate to use this as a confessional, but uh, I got it out, and hopefully I'll see the humor in it. <laughs> well, at, at this point, Dick, I, I don't know how many years ago that was, but uh, I think you're probably safe, you know? <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I'm, I'm sure it was 40 years ago at least. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love that you shared hopefully it. Hopefully he I still has a sense of humor. <laughs> oh, I th- I think you're safe there. That's for sure. All right. I think uh, I think he'll get a good chuckle out of that one. I know I did. I know Jeff did as well. <laughs> those are the stories that we were hoping that we'd get. You know, you, you yeah. always fulfill every dream when uh, when you come on the podcast. Yeah. Well. Anyway, I uh, <laughs> it's uh, great that you're getting those guys. I I didn't know that Mana was going to be on it. He's a lucky son of a gun because I sure could have thought of some things to him too. Um, I, I I probably better uh, I better stop that. I will say, let me say something uh, really, 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 really. I think complimentary to to Mena though. I, this has always stuck with me. So when I first met him, he had taught I don't know, a couple thousand muskies or something, and I'd taught what if he'd taught two thousand, I'd probably taught two hundred or something. I don't know. You know, I was just amazed at the number he had caught, you know, because he started fishing as soon as he could grow hair, I guess. And and anyway, so we ended up fishing, and I took him to a spot in Canada that still doesn't get fished very much. I guess before that, I found out he had never, I just assumed he'd caught a number of 50s, but he had never at that point caught a 50-inch fish. And so we're fishing away, fishing away, fishing away, and uh, I'll try to abbreviate this. I'm rambling again, but uh, lo and behold, he—I I remember distinctly what he, what he did. We were fishing this uh, rock point on an island, a rock uh, ledge. Came off an island, out toward the current. He started banging an Ernie, and I thought, uh, you know, his crankbait at the time. And I thought, geez, that's that's a damn good idea. And I know Martin had that thought, and bingo, he gets this fish. And so he fights fish, gets it alongside the boat, and uh, I said, well, man, you got your 50. No, 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 I ain't got it. I don't know. I don't know. I said, no, that's a 50. I don't know. I'm going to. Anyway, he insisted, honest to God, he insisted that we measure that thing. I, I used to call it the ice, ice pick deal. I mean, it had to be. Exact. I mean, it was it was a, the early version of a bump board. We had some sort of board or something, and I mean, he wouldn't. I said, "There, I, I can see it." He's no, I want to see it. I mean, he said, "Are you sure?" And I mean, he went out of his way. And I thought to myself, "You know something? There's a there's a guy that really, really would report a forty nine and seven eighths or something." You know, 
anyway, that's always stuck with me. So I hate to, I hate to brag him up, but in, in terms of credibility, he's been a credible guy in my opinion ever since. So hats off to him. I, that, that is just stuck with me. And again, that's probably, Oh, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago, probably. I, I, unfortunately, I don't, I don't see Pete or I don't see Al or any of those guys very much anymore, but, uh, it is what it is. The old days are the old days. Good times, and I hope I hope some you know the people enjoy some of these stories. But anyway, guys, I appreciate it. I hope that I hope that gave you a filler. It sounds like I uh, was the last of, of the uh, old war horses you've been talking to, but uh, I I enjoyed it, and uh, it's a it's a, it's a pleasure to uh, in effect share a stage with all those guys that you named. So I hope. Uh, the people enjoy uh, your whole series. I, I'm going to look forward to it. I, I haven't, I guess, heard Al. I don't watch much TV anymore. So, but I, I'm looking forward to it myself. So, I want to thank you for having me on again. Absolutely, Dick. Uh, you know, it's always a joy to have you on. That's for sure. I, I love your stories. I love uh, all the details that you <laughs> give, and it's it's always a blast. So, I got to ask: Have you fished with Bill yeah. Sandy? Fish with uh, Joe Booker. I'm just kind of curious. Uh, you had stories I, on both. I, no, I, I know, I know both of them. I've never fished with either one of them. I've got some things about both of them that uh, that have stuck with me over the years. Well, there's a lot of things that Joe has said that always struck me as profound and true. One thing about uh, Bill Sandy has always intrigued me is his ability to get on fish. And one time he made a statement that I, I thought, uh, for some reason, I mean, it was really, I thought, profound. And I, it went something along these lines. He said, uh, I know where the fish are by the end of the day. If I find the fish in the morning, I can generally follow them and stay on them throughout the day. But every morning is a new day. I have no clue. I've got to start. You know, with A, and if A doesn't work, I got to go to B, and if B doesn't work, I got to go to C. But eventually, when I get on them, then I'm on them. I can stay with them the rest of the day. And so, basically, I always read that as uh, as being profound and really, really what what's at the core of musky fishing. Because you you get up in the morning, you don't, you know, maybe you got strong feelings about weed and no oxygen early in the morning and so on. But, but you really, in the morning, you start, you, you're pretty much starting over. And you gotta, you, you got to try A, B, C, D, till something clicks, and then you go with it. And he was the guy that, I, I, I'm sure I butchered the way he, said, he stated it, but he said it to me or in my presence or something someplace, and I thought to myself, damn it, you know, there it is. In one handful, there, there, there's the key to musky fishing right there. So anyway, I think, I think highly of all the guys apparently I've been talking to today, and uh, it's a pleasure to get on the same stage with those guys. So thanks, appreciate it. Well, Dick, thank you very much for coming out. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule to talk musky fishing with us. Anytime you'd love to come on, we're always open to have you on. Uh, I, I think I don't know how many times we've had you on now—three, four times maybe. <laughs> And every time it brings something different. And I always feel like we literally have just scratched the surface with the knowledge that you still have on musky fishing <laughs> and, and even the stories that you have on musky fishing. I mean, it's, 
And not to mention, yeah, it's, well, it's an easy time for Brad and I. We just get to hit, kick back, and you take the stage. <laughs> Sit back and try to figure out how to shut me up. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, guys. So I'll uh, we'll wrap it up. Maybe maybe we'll do it again someday. And uh, happy holidays to you and your family. Thank you, sir. Same to you. We hope you guys have a, yep. a great New Year as well. And it's good to hear from you again. So thank you. Yep. Bye. All right, that's a wrap on episode 200. Always fun. I like talking to those guys. Uh, every one of them has a wealth of knowledge. You know, well, uh, in, in essence, you know, it's like a Legends podcast. And there's obviously other Legends out there. We didn't just pick five that were them, but you know what I'm saying. And it, it was great to get them on. I'm glad that we could convince Dick to come on again. And, you know, there's other ones out there. You know, we hear from uh, from people all the time about certain guests they would like us to have on. And, and there, you know, there's legends that are on. There's legends we've had on and we haven't had back on that we'd like to do that as well. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. I, I think uh, the names that we provided in this podcast, are uh, it, it's pretty cool, man. I, I don't even know how to explain it. It's something that we've talked about doing for over a year, you know, that we wanted to bring on a couple of these other faces. And for the most part, other than Dick, they're all brand new guests. And I believe we're going to see them, you know, throughout this next season as well. Yeah, for sure. That's what I was going to say. The only thing I I would say I, I regret was that we only gave them, you know, roughly a half an hour of their time. I will say Dick came in at like 38 minutes, but, and he said he would keep it at 15, but we, we, you and I both knew that was never going to happen. He can't have a topic and only cover it in 15 minutes. There's just no way that's ever going to go down. Well, that's what makes him special. That's for sure. And I, I, uh, grasped at the chair here the whole time listening to him. I, I just absolutely love listening to Dick Pearson. So. It's awesome. And hopefully the listeners appreciate it as much as I think we did. You know, the one thing, Brad, when we talk to, you know, anglers of this class or however you'd like to say it, the passion that still runs so deep in all of them is it's amazing to me. Honestly, they're all get giddy and they are all still super excited to talk about musky fishing. And that I find to be really cool and something that I can hope that I can continue on as I continue my musky career because they're, like I said, they're all just super passionate. They're all just, they're just like little kids yet when they talk musky fishing. Well, I think that's the the poison that I mentioned with Al um, as we were doing Mr. Lindner. That's the poison, right? This sport, for whatever reason, it ingrains in you. And, and if you're truly passionate about it, I don't think that ever goes away, Jeff. Um, you, you can call it a poison, a sickness, whatever you want to say. There's something about muskies that just literally go right to your bones, right? Yeah, which is why we spend, you know, hours weekly talking about them on this podcast. You know, it's 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 in you. You got to have it, you know. So. All right. Well, that puts a cap on it. You know, episode 200, Brad and I and Carrie, we want to thank you for all the support that you've given us over 200 episodes. When we made it to 100, I had hoped we made it to two. And now that we made it to two, I hope we make it to three and four. That would be I don't know how how we continue to, you know, make the you know, anniversary issues or or anniversary episodes or however you want to say it better than what we've done already. I don't know. I don't know who to find. We're running like the well, we've ran the well dry essentially on, you know, guests. There's still some to go, but you know, if you're looking for big names, we've covered, gosh, Brad, I think we've covered almost every one of them. Yeah. I, you know, truly I'm always thinking about this, Jeff, you know, I definitely, uh, I'm, fumbling around with my phone just trying to think of other people that maybe we haven't had on and i'm sure that there's there's a few out there right 
we keep notes of that. We're trying to uh, trying to make the check marks off of each of those names. Yep, definitely. But anyways, you know, we don't keep rambling. It's this episode's gone on for I don't know, probably pushing close to three hours. I said I'd never edit a three-hour-long podcast again, which is obviously a uh, that's not true. I'm going to end up doing it right here. So once again. We want to thank everybody for listening to our podcast. Thanks for putting up with us for 200 episodes. We hope everybody has a happy holiday, even though this isn't the holiday episode. We'll, we'll hit that up yet. But we just want to thank everybody for their support. And we'll see everybody again with episode 201 next week.